Hi, I'm Kyle. And I'm Trevor. And welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. Now, if you're not familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein myself and Kyle take turns introducing each other to movies, and uh, in this way we catch up on our cinema. Uh, so it is the month of June, and we're doing a special event here on the show that we've been calling Appreciating Peter Weller Month. Appreciating. Yeah, uh, and if you're not familiar with who Peter Weller is, uh, he's he's not a leading man anymore. But in the '80s and the '90s, uh, he he had a decent run as a as a player in the sci-fi genre primarily. Um, I've always liked him. I, I can't really put my finger on why. Kyle kind of quantified it a little bit. He said it, it has a lot to do with like the structure of his face and his voice. There's just something about him. Yeah. Um, and just for kicks, uh, I decided it would be fun to, you know, explore some of his filmography. And also we got some uh, marketing synergy in the form of uh, his most famous performance, that of uh, RoboCop. Um, RoboCop made an appearance in a Mortal Kombat 11 recently. Uh, so, of course, being as we're a fledgling podcast, I figured it'd be nice to get some promotional synergy there. <laughs> um, uh, so that being said, uh, the movie that we're covering this week uh, is, an, is a weird one. This is from very early in Peter Weller's career. In fact, this is one of his very earliest uh, leading leading role performances. Uh, and that would be The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension uh, from 1984, directed by W.D. Richter. And uh, Kyle, what, what, what is to be said about Buckaroo Banzai? Well, <laughs> you mentioned that this is a cult classic, which I feel this is, we're kind of, teetering into dangerous territory here because neither you or I really cared for this film and I feel kind of bad now because we're not going to be too kind to this one I would say I think we're going to have a few we're going to air some grievances we had um but yeah this is a this is a cult movie on the nose where there is a fan base for this and if you understand this film and like it that's totally fine but if it just goes right over your head or you have any problems with it, it's just going to be a thud and it's going to do pretty much nothing for you. And we are in the latter camp. Um, this is, I it, it's like they're trying to shoehorn the A-team into like, uh, I guess, almost like an Indiana Jones with back to the future a little bit i don't know i star trek maybe <laughs> i don't i actually was getting kind of a star trek feel like the original series uh star trek feel with this i was actually referring to the aliens in this movie as the borg um i don't think that was the original i think that was next generation when the Borg. that came was along. next gen yeah um yeah i don't i don't know what to say <laughs> it's so hard to, <laughs> it's so hard to like talk about this well I feel like in when it comes to you know talking about or reviewing movies that we don't particularly like, unfortunately, you usually occupy the role of dad, and I'm usually mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so to steal one of your lines, um, to to steal the line of I'm sure many a uh, TGIF dad, um, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. I'm just disappointed. And that that kind of sums up my feelings about this movie because it it bears the label. Of a, of a cult film mm -hmm. um, but in actuality it's it's like a, a layer deeper than that because this is not a cult classic no it's not a classic it's it's like a fringe cult film as in like if if 
if like like cult films are like like marijuana or something it's like no we need to get some of the harder stuff <laughs> it's like it's like this is the eight millimeter cult film where it's like you gotta hunt for this shit <laughs> like, yeah this was <sighs> one does not stumble across the adventures of buckaroo bonsai across the eighth dimension this <laughs> you you go you go looking for it <laughs> this felt like a child wrote the script and then a group of dads acted it out and it was directed by a dad doing coke like it was just that's a good idea that's a good idea get that in there that's a great idea that's an even better idea let's keep going with that i don't know the the plot itself and like the decisions for like the aliens and stuff like that it feels like a child wrote it it's like okay. they've got like a funny voice uh and they're just trying to do something i don't know exactly and they're all named john they're all named john <laughs> i mean it just sounds like a children's story almost well, um, that's something I hadn't considered, actually, uh, because I kind of wrote this off as an experiment in absurdist storytelling, mm-hmm. where it's just it's just meant to never allow you to find your footing. Like, it's, it's intentionally designed in that way to just kind of put you off kilter and leave you there. And, you know, sometimes that's fun. It's like getting tipsy or something. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, I'm kind of loose. I'm kind of goofy right now. But um, Axe Cop brings to mind Axe Cop. Have you heard of Axe Cop? Cop? I have not. Okay, I will educate you. Um, so Axe Cop was a thing, and I, I want to say the late 2000s, that the novelty of it was that it was a comic book, I think originally a webcomic, that became an actual published comic, and I think a, a, a cartoon series at one point, probably short-lived. I think Will Forte maybe did the voice in it. Um, anyway, the joke was that it was in fact written by a child, a very young child, but illustrated um, by a professional cartoonist who is his older brother. Uh, so you got these like really crisp comic book drawings, but all the writing, the dialogue, the concepts, everything came from the brain of a child. And also there's that Japanese movie House, Haosu, um, that the whole concept, I guess, is that it was written by, I don't know if it's the director, like a producer's daughter or something, but it was written by a child and then shot like, we're doing that <laughs> it's like doesn't matter if it's dumb or doesn't make sense we're fucking doing it um so yeah it does have a little bit of an axe cop vibe to it where it's like it's very loosey-goosey um it has an internal logic that isn't really expounded upon to the point that it is intensely alienating um and i want to say and i brought this up before we started recording that it's so much of the scripting of this feels like some sort of andy kaufman-esque gag where it's like a it's like flipping the bird to the audience where it's like haha we just went over a whole bunch of details that we're not going to bother to you know flesh out at all and you're just going to have to we're going to throw you in the deep end and good luck swimming <laughs> see it honestly like it makes me think of Lars von Trier cuz he just kind of <laughs> like he just kind of manipulates you and like he just doesn't really give you all the information and he just kind of toys with you and it's like what what it's he just confuses you in some movies, uh, and that's what this kind of felt like. It felt like it was if, in a different setting. This could have been high art. <laughs> this could have been film art. See, I haven't seen any Lars von Trier films, so I can't. Like, this is probably totally inaccurate, but I'm picturing the uh, the psychic test sequence at the beginning of Ghostbusters with, <laughs> with <laughs> like guessing what the card is, and he's just intentionally fucking you constantly. <laughs> He has one, I mean, I think that the element of crime, I think that kind of, like, the story itself is just strange and the way it's edited, and it just doesn't, like, you never really, like, there's a backstory to it that you're not really given, 
and you're in the middle of it, and you're like, I really don't know what's happening in this movie, uh, which isn't why I like the film. Um, but it, it it's the same kind of idea where it's just like, I'm not giving you all the information. Just watch it. Just get into it. Um, yeah, this could have been high art if it had just gone a different with a different structure, or if it was shot well. I think that would have made the, the big difference if it was actually shot well. Yeah, I don't know that this had a massive budget to work with. Um, there, there's a little bit of rough compositing in there, but also this is from 1984. Um, yeah, let me let me let me like give the plot breakdown here because I'm just gonna read it. Uh, normally yes. this is Kyle's mm-hmm. duty, but I'm just gonna fucking read this. So. Um, the Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Uh, the premise centers upon the efforts of the polymath, uh, Dr. Buckaroo Banzai, a physicist, neurosurgeon, test pilot, and musician, to save the world by defeating a band of interdimensional aliens called Red Electroids from Planet 10. Um, yeah, that's, that's a mouthful. But um, what I meant by a Kaufman-esque gag um, and this, this you can actually glean from just the title of the film um, is that one of the central, like one of the central concepts of the storytelling in this film is that it's meant to be the middle chapter in a greater story that is not represented in any other media, as far as I understand. Uh, so this is the kind of thing where the example I used in talking to you before we recorded was like Batman, where it's like if if you see. Billy D. Williams and Tim Burton's 1989 Batman playing a character named Harvey Dent. If you've read a Batman comic, then you, the audience, can get kind of excited that it's like, oh, I know his path. I know that he eventually should become Two-Face. It won't be Billy D. Williams, but but we'll get a Two-Face at some point. Whereas this, we have all this all these references to past events and and concepts that there's no way to get up to speed. There's no research to be done. There is no canon outside of what exists in this film. So it's very alienating because all the characters in it know what everybody's talking about. And actually, that's to the that's something I need to tip my hat to the actors in this film. They do that very well. Where There's a lot of Star Trek dialogue in this <laughs> where it's just science bullshit. Mm-hmm. And uh, they cast the right people because they, they rattle it off like like they know exactly what it all means. Only problem is we, the audience, are completely lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, yeah, it, it kind of puts you off kilter and you never really find your footing in this movie. And like you said, if it was shot better or maybe it had just more mo- more color and energy to it you mm-hmm. could you could just take it as like a lights with sound experience but unfortunately it's it's kind of dry the energy excessively so i think you're right i think that that could have completely changed the film if it had a little bit more energy because it has like quick moments of energy but it's very brief very very brief um yeah you forgot to mention comic book hero as well uh, in the uh, in the plot description, <laughs> well, that's uh, which one I of the ha- running gags in the movie is that Buckaroo Banzai is apparently the most famous person on the planet. Yeah, uh, uh, I, so much so that even the president of the United States defers to him in decision making. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Also, he's apparently an expert martial artist, but unfortunately, we never really get to see that in the movie. This opening, the opening sequence, reminded me of Dawn of the Dead for some reason. I don't, I don't know why. Just it was just kind of slow. Like something's happening, but we don't really know what's happening. It's just kind of like dialogue in between the characters, kind of going on. It just, it kind of reminded me of that. 
Yeah, so to to get into the movie proper, um, like I said, this was directed by W.D. Richter and written by Earl Mack Rauch. And if you glance at the filmographies for both of these gentlemen, um, they aren't major players in Hollywood. Um, the director has written some screenplays that definitely count for something. Mm-hmm. Um, you had mentioned uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Which I um, personally really like. Um, Goldblum connection, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and then a couple couple years later, he'd do Big Trouble in Little China. Which is funny. Which I remember enjoying Hollow. 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 Fuck, Fuck it. it. <laughs> it's such a good joke. I don't know why it landed perfectly. Um, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that. It was a, it was a fun ride. Um, well, and, and it's funny, too, because you point out some similarities between the structure of the script for Big Trouble in Little China and this one, where Jack Burton is kind of the the fish out of water. Um, only difference is like, and actually this is to the benefit of Big Trouble in Little China. Like the way Jack Burton as a character is structured is he's the guy, he's the biggest guy on that poster, but he is a total buffoon and yeah. he's only useful like twice in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so you have the situation where everyone else in the movie knows all the, like all the lore and all the mythology surrounding all these like mystical Chinese elements at work. And then you have Jack Burton, who is there to be the fish out of water. But in terms of like exposition dump, we get some lip service paid to it. But for the most part, he's just kind of along for the ride. Mm-hmm. And we are too. But energy. It's a John Carpenter film. It fucking moves. And when it gets fun, it's real fun. So that movie works um, in a way that this one doesn't. Um, but yeah, both of these fellas seems like... Uh, me- <laughs> probably device they're probably very divisive in terms of like their relationships in hollywood because it seems like they have a knack for intentionally alienating their audiences in some capacity um but yeah uh we immediately get the title for the film as soon as it starts uh and we get the nice uh synth score for the film which i found very charming i thought that was actually a highlight in fact um i'm gonna spoil it right away i think uh the end credits of this film are the best part of it, and not just because it's the end of the movie. Um, I think it, I think <laughs> I think that sequence is immensely charming, and I so desperately want to sh- like reshoot that and re and steal that music for a movie of my own someday. I'm gonna say at the top here. I went into this very excited. Uh, you if did. You, if you tell me that you have a cult classic, and I watch the trailer. I'm like, well, this looks wacky. This looks like a lot of fun. I was really excited to go into this, and I just maybe that disappointed me more. But man, <laughs> it was like eating cardboard popcorn. I think that's the best way. I'm like, oh, that popcorn looks so good. Then you take a bite of it, and like, this is fucking cardboard. This isn't even popcorn. I thought it was. I thought it was gonna be good. It's not good. <sighs> I could eat this whole fucking <laughs> bowl of popcorn. <laughs> cardboard. <laughs> oh uh, man, but yet. So- we get a crawl here that was too dense for me to take notes on because um, it, it's it's like it's like another like space balls gag where it's like are we done yet is the crawl still going oh it's still going um basically all you need to know is what we said in the uh in the plot description that buckaroo bonsai is the coolest person that ever lived he's a surgeon he's a rock star he's the best martial artist that ever lived um and now he's about to face his toughest challenge yet um a bunch of aliens that are like orbiting earth somehow um and yeah uh like you said uh we we kind of get thrown into the deep end from the start where there's some sort some sort of activity going on where we have we have a bunch of people apparently they're all in the desert and uh 
what's really interesting here though is that we're in the desert it, it looks like there's some sort of experiment going on um and we get like a nice dolly shot and everything but i was so distracted by the credits because the, just the names kept popping up on the screen i was like holy fuck this cast is stacked yeah like for 1984 maybe not but today like in retrospect it's like wow we had a lot of talent in this film Clancy <laughs> brown um oh, uh but jonathan banks is in here uh, a young, uh, a young Jonathan Banks, same voice and same uh, same kind of demeanor, but it's younger Jonathan Banks. Um, <laughs> who's the weird looking guy? Um, Vincent Chevelli. Thing, Vincent Chevelli. <laughs> yeah, I was like, who's the weirdest looking guy in the cast? That was easy. <laughs> Doc Brown, uh, Clancy Brown, uh, fucking Dan Hedaya. Dan Hedaya. <laughs> I don't even think he has a line in this. It's crazy. I was baffled by that. How you have some of the most charismatic character actors in here, and they barely get to do anything. Yeah, and on top of that, like the headliners of the cast, we haven't even mentioned. We've yeah, got Peter Weller leading the cast again, one of his earlier leading roles. So maybe he maybe he wasn't like putting asses in seats, but he, to his credit, he he performs this role quite capably. Um, and damn, he's good with that science jargon. Like mm-hmm. he, I didn't know he had that motor mouth in him. Uh, yeah, he could he could be in a fucking Tarantino movie. So you <laughs> mentioned he was really into Italian uh, history. Uh, he has a PhD. I didn't realize he has a PhD in Italian yeah. in, in Italian Renaissance art history. <laughs> yeah, um, I I looked up some interviews with him like around the time we started do, like doing this event month, and I was man, I was like even more endeared to him just as a person. He just seems like a cool guy, mm-hmm. and. Um, I watched a uh, like a, a talk he did at like a college of some sort where he was talking about RoboCop and doing the mime stuff. I'd already heard that story before, but that's where I learned about um, the uh, looping slash ADR business in Italy because mm. I guess he spends a lot of time out there. And he was saying, yeah, uh, because Mussolini was paranoid, uh, he he caused the giallo genre to become what it is mm. um, because he was paranoid. And apparently, he demanded that uh, films not be shot with sync sound. Every, no like shit. every ele- every element of audio in his films in Italy had to be dubbed. No kidding. Um, and because of that, the audio technicians in Italy apparently became very adept at like doing the entire audioscape of movies from the editing booth as opposed to on the set. That is fascinating. Very, and it all came from Peter Weller's mouth. So I was like, "Thank you, Peter Weller. I Thanks, feel PW. educated." <laughs> um, but yeah, we have Peter Weller. Uh, we have Ellen Barkin, who is a like she's not a uh, like a household name, but she's always welcome in mm-hmm. any, any movie you see. Like I loved her in Drop Dead Gorgeous um, with the oh god, she, was a, she, was she had the beer crazy. can fused in her. <laughs> that movie <laughs> really is. It is a crazy underrated '90s movie. It's a gem. It's I love so that good. Movie. Um, um, and I like Jeff her- Goldblum, of course. <laughs> I liked her playing um, Al Pacino's uh, right-hand man in Ocean's 13. I thought she was great in there, too. I haven't seen that one. Oh, man. It goes uh, Ocean's 11, Ocean's 13, Ocean's 12, obviously. But Ocean's 13 is great. A friend of mine, is a he's a big proponent of uh, Steven Soderbergh. Mm-hmm. He, he thinks he's the bee's knees. Um, I got burned really bad by Ocean's 12. Oh, um, it's so bad. I think it's generally accepted that it's bad, but it didn't burn me as far as like Steven Soderbergh as a director. Like I do appreciate him. So 
I've had Ocean's 13 in the back of my mind for a long time because I think you've told me before that it's it's good. It's really good. I really enjoy that movie. Yeah, I want. I would very much like to see it. Everybody likes a good heist. There's a reason. There's a reason why Netflix is just heist movies. <laughs> like, it's a heist it's movie, like, and it's a grounded. Uh, contemporary Al Pacino, which is really hard to find. <laughs> so it's it's not a Doncacino. It's not a, a Jack and Jill Al Pacino, where he's it, sing he's singing the Dunkin like Dunkin' Donuts song. <laughs> I bet it keeps him up at night. The, the, just thinking about like how much money he one probably made off of that movie, and two that he did that movie. <laughs> uh, probably not. Uh, he strikes me as the kind of guy who just enjoys the art of acting so much that it's just like if it gives him an opportunity to do it and try new like i've been saying this for a long time that i think that's actually part of why like robert de niro and some of those other older actors started doing random shit like comedies and why Mm -hmm. why meryl streep did mamma mia because they're they're actors Mm -hmm. actors are weird fucking people (laughs) <laughs> if, yeah. no honestly like if you've know, ever yeah. been on a set with fucking actors or like behind behind the curtain with stage actors they're fucking weirdos i'm sorry but um in their eyes it's probably not like a shameful thing it's like this is me actually stepping out of my comfort zone mm-hmm. it's like meryl streep's like i don't fucking sing and robert de niro's like i'm not a funny guy in any capacity <laughs> like, it's like but i'm gonna try and this is me stepping out of my box you know um but yeah, uh, so yeah. this movie we this opened. Is be so the hard desert. to talk about. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is a, two weeks in a row, man. We're just like trying to talk about Ooh. everything but the movie. So we're we're in the desert. We're doing some sort of experiment, and uh, immediately, like from minute one, uh, we get just nonstop Star Trek talk, where it's just like I don't know if the science talk is bullshit, um, but it is intensely alienating to the point that it's very hard to follow. It's very. What makes it alienating, actually, is that it makes it very difficult to pinpoint the details that are important mm-hmm. and the details that are just there to be, f- like, flowery, just like wallpaper. Because that that's, that's an important aspect of screenwriting, is picking and choosing the parts of the dialogue that the audience needs, like, the information they absolutely need to get to the next scene or to the end of the movie and understand it, and... Uh, balancing that with like the poetry just like pure prose where it's just like this sounds good so i'm gonna put it in there mm-hmm. it's like kyle nightmare scenario imagine like a joss whedon style script where ev- like everyone's just doing that the entire movie oh. where it's like we're not even trying to get you up to speed we're just trying to be clever every line oh, I <laughs> threw up Kyle just threw up in his mouth a little bit. <laughs> Alan, what's what Aaron Sorkin nonsense, basically? Yeah, but imagine that. But it's nothing but that. Where it's like we're, there's no plot. It's it's like Seinfeld format, but but we're just trying to be super clever all the time and just trying to one up each other. Nobody talks that fast. <laughs> Nobody talks that fast. No one has no one has a string of inner monologue going that hits their mouth that quickly. It just doesn't happen. Oh man, I I remember having a physical like reaction of like revulsion when I was watching uh, the newsroom, uh, mm. that HBO show. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's not it's not a terrible show, but the dialogue was driving me nuts because I was like, everybody's making Simf- Simpsons references. I do that. Jeff uh, Daniels should not be doing that. Yeah, I listened to him talk about. He's like. He has this uh, line about being a Republican, and there's like a, a like a fucking moderate liberal or somebody on the show with him, and he does like this 
kind of being a smart ass about explaining why he's a Republican. And I'm like, this is fucking terrible. I'm never going to watch that show. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah, Jeff Daniels. You're, you're, you're fine. I think it got canceled after two Good. seasons at most. Um, you're, you're fine. I cannot um. take him seriously. I, if, if he wanted to be taken seriously by me, I should have never watched Dumb and Dumber because I will never get past that. It, him fly away home, I'm like, nope. Nope, that is that is Harry. That is not that is not an actor. That is just Harry. I saw that movie in the theater like because I was enamored with his performance in Speed, um, which you haven't seen. No, I haven't but, seen that. Uh, for some reason, uh, Richard Dreyfuss in Jaws, uh, I adored him uh, from childhood, mm-hmm. and Jeff Daniels from Speed, forevermore. He's on the good list for me. So. I don't know. Like he, I have a like a similar kind of affinity to Jeff Daniels as I do Peter Weller. It's like I can't really put my finger on it, but I just, I just like him. I don't. don't (laughs) It's like Patrick Wilson. It's like I like Patrick Wilson. I like him. I just can't take him seriously. That's the thing. Yeah, I get that. But um, anyway, we start to get introduced back to the movie. (laughs) This is gonna (laughs) take so long. We uh we get introduced to some of the characters here, not improper. Again, this this movie is shot and structured in such a way where very few introductions occur in this film. Everybody just kind of knows everyone, and you just kind of have to keep up. So you you got to be laser focused just to know what's going on in this movie. Mm-hmm. But we meet uh, Doctor Hikita, who is a uh, a Japanese man in old age makeup. And f- funny enough, there's a there's a strange connection here, in that uh, this guy I bothered to look up because apparently he was very enthusiastic about joining this production again actors are fucking weirdos <laughs> like you were excited to get involved with buckaroo puns <laughs> um and apparently he like showed up to his audition in old age makeup that like he made himself or something so yeah he did a sean young <laughs> <laughs> but uh the interesting connection is that uh he and clancy brown both did voice work for the superman animated cartoon in the mm. 90s um, although this fella, he has a lot of he has a lot of vocal performances. Like if you were a child in the '90s, you've heard his voice. Mm. Um, unfortunately, he doesn't have any like headlining roles, but um, he's doing a heavily exaggerated Japanese accent in this movie. Um, but he's he's kind of an important player in the story, but he kind of comes and goes like so much so that's like, oh shit, I forgot he was even a part of it. He's so over the top that Steph was actually asking if it was like a breakfast at tiffany situation is like is he actually japanese i'm like no, no no he's he's actually japanese i just think he's doing something here yeah that it, it's kind of strange because i mean again it's 1984 maybe there were expectations um because that was definitely a thing still is actually um there there are some embarrassing instances of that where it's like dang man that i know what that guy sounds like and pat pat morita Mm-hmm. He does not sound like Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> uh, no, um, but that, there's an expectation, I think, uh, especially in this era, that you know, if you're going to be Asian on film, you're going to be Asian, <laughs> like A Z N Asian. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's a very exaggerated accent, um, and I could see, I could see why, like your 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 bullshit detector would start going. <laughs> But uh, we get some <laughs> mention of, like, we're waiting for Bonsai. This, this guy's not Japanese. I don't been more sure of anything in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then man. you look up the credits and you're like, fuck shit. I hope that, does, I hope that doesn't come across as racist. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're waiting for Bonsai. And 
what's kind of funny here is that we have this bunker filled with science gear and stuff and half of the people in here are like uniformed military and half of them just look like a bunch of hipsters like the a team <laughs> um, yeah yeah the a team um it's like the the I don't, I'm trying to think of a good description for them. It's like almost like GI Joe in that like nobody has like an official uniform, but everybody looks like an action figure in that they have some sort of like ornament or like some sort of aspect to their outfit that makes. There's them something stand unique out. about them, yeah. Yeah, I mean the GI Joe crew. Like, there's always like that one thing that you can point to, or it's like, oh, that's the guy with the Irish cabbie hat. That guy mm. is literally Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> like, <laughs> that guy is literally Sergeant Slaughter. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, we cut from that scene to a uh, Buckaroo Banzai um, wearing a sur- a surgical mask, and he has Jeff Goldblum like uncomfortably hovering over him. Mm-hmm. Jeff Goldblum's a lanky fella. Like he can loom. He's crazy he, tall. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he can loom, and he he is just kind of like hovering over Mr. Peter Weller, uh, uncomfortably so. But they're mm-hmm. they're performing some sort of neurosurgery in here, and uh, we get just all all manner of science dialogue here. Just I I, I could not follow it. I could Mm-mm. not bother. I could not be bothered to write it down. Um, but this is apparently, I think, supposed to be the first meeting between these two characters because Jeff Goldblum doesn't join the group formally until later. And this is, I think he asks him, like, they're finishing up with the surgery or whatever. He's like, would you like to join my team? And it's not really clear why. He's just like, I like your voice and I like your tallness, maybe. I don't know. Like, he's just like, you should join I, my team. I think, you, like, he's got I a crush think you're right, Kyle. Yeah. I think he's just like, hey, you're pretty tall. What's <laughs> like, up with you? You're tall. <laughs> look hey at this. kid, you can. You, you're pretty good in the fight. You want to? You want to join up with me and Chewy? Look at this, <laughs> look at this tall drink of dick. Yeah, let's get you in the. What is the? What is the name of this? Uh, the Hong. The Hong Kong Cavaliers. Yeah. That is a badass band name, by the way. Uh, so yeah, Bonsai asks Goldblum uh, to join his band, and as Kyle pointed out, uh, their name is the Hong Kong Cavaliers, which I gotta say is. I kind of dig that as a as the name for a band. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if you could get away with that without having an actual Chinese person in your band in 2020, anyway. But <laughs> I kind of like the name, though. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, uh, this is where we get to see that Clancy Brown is in fact in the movie. And as Kyle had pointed out before we started recording, he's not playing a, a creeper or yeah. an asshole. <laughs> he's just a pretty cool guy, <laughs> and I was very pleased to see that. <laughs> Um, uh, I was thinking, I mentioned to you off air, I'm like, uh, Clancy Brown, Tom, what, what, uh, Brian Thompson, Brian Thompson, Brian Thompson, and then local, local hero uh, yeah, for, 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 for me being from Seattle <laughs> and, uh, Biff Tannen or, uh, Tom, Tom Wilson. It's it Wilson or Wilkins. It's probably Wilson. Yeah. One of those two, the three of them <laughs> playing in a movie. I'm thinking I'm like a, an American pie scenario. Where they just are, they're, they're basically American Pie, but who can scare the shit out of dweebs more? It's like, who can who can scare out of more, scare the shit out of more dweebs? And one just like going for numbers, the other one's like, uh, like going for like the big setup, like like doing like a real big practical joke that's gonna cause like he's gonna like pull down his pants in front of everybody. I don't know. I'm picturing them just having a bully off. Well, I mean, the the real question would be which among the group would have the Back to the Future um, 3D glasses? Oh. <laughs> who would have the Billy Zane cowboy hat? Uh. <laughs> and who would be Jason Scott Lee's thing? <laughs> I 
Unless you've got power. Unless you've got power. <laughs> I, I vote Biff for that. Yeah. <laughs> He's got the voice for it. But also, alternative to that would be um, the three brothers from the breakup, but recast. Oh with them. yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. That was perfect casting. That, that <laughs> Vincent D'Onofrio was amazing. That like, even Cole Hauser fit like Perfect. Cole Hauser, Hollywood tried to make a thing out of Cole Hauser. It did not happen, but no. he did well there. Patrick Wilson came in and just popped him in the head, and he's he's somewhere under like in a dumpster, just like still sleeping it's, it off. It's it's the lips. Patrick Wilson was like, "Oh, you're the big lips guy. Mm-hmm. So am I. So <laughs> it's am like, I. Except I got talent, <laughs> and I'm not in movies with fucking Tom Sizemore. <laughs> oh, that's embarrassing." <laughs> Um, anyway, <laughs> we love the movie. <laughs> um, anyway, the movie. We'll so, try to uh, fast forward over something as we go along. Whew. Yeah, there's going to be a little bit of. So Bonsai uh, exits the OR and uh, he arrives at this test field in the desert and he's dressed like a ninja of some sort and he has got a satchel and it's got apparently a flux capacitor in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and funny enough, Kyle pointed out this movie came out before back to the future mm-hmm. and also has doc brown christopher lloyd in it well i was going to ask you was this co-current productions because uh back to the future was finished filming but then they had to completely go back and do it over with uh uh michael j fox so it might have actually been happening at the same time you're probably not wrong um so yeah maybe somebody stole some notes or something from the mm-hmm. set um, but yeah, he literally has, um, I think this is called the Continuum Overthruster. The Continuum uh, Transfunctioner. <laughs> continuum Transfunctioner. Yeah. Um, oftentimes it's just called the Overthruster, but uh, it basically is the flux capacitor. In fact, uh, where it ends up being housed in this ro- rocket-powered truck, Ford truck, by the way, Ford Tough, um, is exactly where it is housed in the DeLorean. So this is a funny coincidence. Uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> funny coincidence, <laughs> maybe, yeah. Maybe not a coincidence, but anyway, we get a countdown, and uh, Bonsai, Peter Weller, hops into this Ford truck, and uh, he starts up that rocket, and uh, he takes he takes the fuck off. And that, he goes very, very fast. <laughs> I've seen this before. It's in The Master. There's a scene where he's just riding a motorcycle across the desert with not L. Ron Hubbard, uh, but somebody playing him. Uh, it's just this huge, I don't know where this filming location is. It's just an enormous open bit of desert. I'm guessing somewhere outside of Los Angeles. I'm really not sure. Um, it's come up in a few movies, but I noticed it immediately. I'm like, oh, I know what that is. Oh, yeah. There's, I mean, there's places like this in California and Nevada, and I don't know where the, the great salt flats are, but mm. um, that's a that's another location that gets used in films sometimes. But, um, yeah, th- he, this comes across as like a rocket sled experiment almost, where he's trying to, like, break a, a land speed record. <laughs> at least that's what that's what we thought at first, but no, that's not the case. Uh, he's doing They're doing a different kind of experiment, and... Uh, uh, kudos to the effects team. There are, in fact, a couple of good effects in this movie, and one of them here is the uh, uh, the reflection on his visor. Here looks pretty fucking cool when he's on when he's in the rocket truck. The last bit, the last little bit of the movie, I thought was kind of kind of cool. Yeah, some of the optical effects there, yeah. like you can see the like the matte lines, like yeah, thin. I'm fine with that. It's not, it's not thin, but it's a black outline <laughs> around the miniatures and stuff. But it's charming. It yeah. works. Um, but yeah, uh, he's going real fucking fast, and he gets to what appears to be the finish line, and he just kind of veers off course. And yeah. 
Like all the military guys seem to be kind of surprised by this, but uh, all the hipsters, all the the A team, the GI Joe squad, they like, they're like whatever. They know what he's up to. Yeah, yeah. they know what's up. Um, and then the uh, the gizmo in the truck, uh, the overthruster, starts to kick in and it projects like a blue laser into the into the side of a mountain that he is just zooming towards. I and when he hits the mountain he goes into dimension x uh we don't find stone warriors here nor do we find krang um, <laughs> nor do we find zoltan but um we get uh some stuff that i don't know it it reminded me like a little bit of like ghostbusters or something but it's basically some sort of optical effects storm complete mm-hmm. with things that i thought were zombies but they turn out to be aliens um and they look like the aliens in this are called electroids and uh kyle was trying to find the right words to describe them. They remind me kind of of the uh, the dinosaur people from the Land of the Lost, like the old Land of the Lost, not the 90s one that I know, oh. but the one that they made the Will Ferrell movie based off of. Yeah, I mean, they even look like that. They look like the, the aliens from Land of the Lost, the Will Ferrell one. Yeah, and, and maybe a little bit of Gorn from Star Trek, the lizard guy that he fights mm-hmm. in, the, in the rocks, you know, that classic fight scene. <laughs> Expert choreography. <laughs> I just watched the Cable Guy like oh, three weeks ago. I told my fr- my uh, my other group of friends in Seattle, I'm like you guys need to watch rewatch Cable Guy. And they're like, we're not going to do that. And my buddy's like, I rewatched Cable Guy. It's great. <laughs> it's it's still great. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Jim Carrey at a certain point started to leave a bad taste in your mouth, and then when you saw that Jim and Andy documentary, you're like, fuck him, like fuck you, Jim Carrey, you fucking loser. Uh, but I mean, if you if you watch that documentary. It's infuriating. There's a reason why they, they shelved it. They're like, we cannot let this out because he is an asshole. We cannot let people see this. I think I sent you the Timothy Oliphant, uh, the little clip from Conan, I don't know, where he's like, he went crazy method on that movie. Jim and Andy, yeah. he went super yeah, method. I've and, heard the stories. I haven't actually seen the footage. But and Timothy, the Timothy Oliphant's like, yeah, so I watched it, but I watched it in character. And uh, my character thought it was pretentious bullshit. You know, that's just my character. <laughs> that's how my character felt. And he is really funny. His reaction oh, to it. That's cool. Um, anyway, yeah, he, we we go into this mountain, and instead of smashing into it, something about this laser opens like a portal to a different dimension. And uh, like I said, some of the effects work here looks kind of cool. In fact, I saw in the credits that they had a dedicated effects team specifically for this sequence. And it actually looks quite good for 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Bonsai pops out the other end of this mountain, and uh, he gets picked up by a chopper. And <laughs> I like that he he hops out of this truck while it's still rolling for no apparent reason. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it's kind of a badass thing. Like, he did just travel to a different dimension. It's probably kind of freaky and a little bit taxing on your body, but the, the truck's still rolling, and he's just like, oh, God. See, Buckaroo is style and substance. He's not one or the other. He has both, so he's got style, but he's also really smart. There's more so, to him than that. Kyle, you had an apt description of... of Buckaroo Banzai, like oh. there's there's a certain celebrity yeah. that probably fancies himself akin to Buckaroo Banzai. You wanna yeah. you wanna inform well, the listeners as to what you're referencing there? Well, Buckaroo Banzai is apparently half Japanese. Uh, he's a trained martial artist as well. Uh, he's in a band. He's a neurosurgeon and he's a comic book hero. I think that uh, Steven Seagal has based his life off of Buckaroo Banzai. Uh, because Steven Seagal's a singer. He's actually a better singer than he is anything else. Like, I don't like his music, 
but it's coherent enough. And I'm like, this actually isn't bad. And I think it's probably his best work. Um, <laughs> he's a singer. He's a martial artist. I believe he is of Japanese heritage, if I'm not mistaken. No. He's no, not. he's not? Okay. He just lived in Japan <laughs> for a while. Um, he does He does actually speak fluent Japanese, though. Okay. And he I does believe himself to be uh, intellectually superior uh, than most human beings. Not uh, just intellectually. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is the man who said he could take Michael J. White. No problem. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think that I think that Stephen Skull has based his life off of Buckaroo Banzai, and his film I mean, his film career started shortly after this movie came out. The, yeah, no, the the timing is kind of perfect. Right? I could totally see Steven Seagal like with with like mutton chop sideburns, like with like his his long slick, but he probably didn't have the ponytail yet. But he probably had the grease back hair, and he's probably like in a theater in Japan. Mm-hmm. And Buckaroo Banzai was playing. He's like, yeah, that should be me. That should <laughs> it's be like, me. <laughs> it's like, I kind of dig this Buckaroo Banzai guy. Uh, Jamaicans? Jamaicans? He, he has death. killed many Jamaicans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe we're onto something here. Yeah, so I think you might have something there, Kyle. So, yeah, so, uh, yeah, Buckaroo gets, uh, he kind of just, like, checks out the, he's getting some, like, some stuff from the guys, and they're like, there's something, blah, 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 and then something, there's leaking, or there's something, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what the fuck they were saying. But he just kind of <laughs> checks out the car, the, the the truck, and he just looks under. And then he looks under, and there's some kind of leaking uh, coming out of the bottom, which standard stuff. Um, but there's a little fucking like uh, like a little soccer ball goo thing uh, just kind of stuck under there. And he he pulls it off, and it's pretty gross looking. Yeah, it looks like brain coral, and it yeah. may as well be called. A MacGuffin. Magoo. Um, Magoo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in some ways, it's like this is a false MacGuffin because it it's talked about as if it's very important. However, I, it, I may have missed it, but I didn't really figure out how it factor, factors into anything. I would say there's almost nothing important that happens in the movie. But yeah, yeah. Even the even the the final resolution to things is just like, I, huh? wow, Kyle. <laughs> like it's kind of fitting that. We do get a big explosion at the end of this movie, and I think it's fitting that the the title character, the the, the principal character in this film, isn't even looking at it when it happens. Mm. <laughs> like, he has his back turned to the most dramatic explosion in the movie. But not even in like a James Bond cool way. It's just he's just kind of no. Like, he has to turn around and be like, "Oh, that happened. Oh, cool." He's kind of <laughs> just like looking at his watch, going down. Eh, just another day. Well, I mean, that is a strength of Peter Weller as an actor. Um, he does seem to have a knack for deadpan, um, and the s- script definitely is nothing but that for mm-hmm. the most part. Um, but uh, from this moment, uh, we cut to an element of the cast that we both overlooked, um, and he should not be overlooked because oh, yeah. he tries. He probably tries the hardest of anyone in this film, and he's always welcome in any film we see him in. He's the only one that kept my attention in the scenes. He's pretty fucking great. Always. Um, and that would be John Lithgow. Yeah. Um, John Lithgow is essentially, I, I guess he's supposed to be the antagonist. Um, he's barely in this movie. He's barely in it. I don't know if he's Italian or Russian. It's inconclusive at this point. Because <laughs> um, even Steph was like, "Is he? what's his accent? What's he doing? I'm like, I think it's Russian by way of Sicily. I'm not sure. Um, I got the exact same impression. Uh, he does have... An Italian person in the credits listed as like a linguist 
coach of some sort, like basically addiction coach of some mm. sort. Um, so it's probably supposed to be Italian, Man. but yeah, it does sound more Russian at times. He would have been a perfect Pierce Brosnan era James Bond villain. He's just like hammy and like campy. He can play like a hammy campy uh, James Bond villain. Where I think in, in Cliffhanger, I rem- I don't remember that movie very well, but I remember his scenes, and I'm like. That that's I think that would have been perfect because he's kind of like I remember him being a little bit menacing but still kind of over the top and fun. He wouldn't be able to be a Daniel Craig Bond villain at all. You have to be a prestigious actor to be in those movies now. Um, but Pierce Brosnan area, I think he would have been fun. He has the wrong kind of character in his face too because he does play like he can play creepy pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has those chubby cheeks mm-hmm. and Daniel Craig like the texture. To quote Joss Whedon, the, uh, the te- <laughs> texture. texture of the texture of the Daniel Craig movies is is very rough, very mm-hmm. raw. And if you like look at the facial facial structure of all the villains in those movies, they all have a lot of edges and a lot of wrinkles and stuff. Whereas John Lithgow has he's got those puffy cheeks. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I could totally see him being like even like a late era Roger yeah. Moore villain. I was gonna say it would have to be because like the Pierce Brosnan James Bond movies peak immediately with Goldeneye and it's just downhill from there he would yes. have been he would have been a ladder I think like maybe like the third Bond movie uh, if you were play or replace Jonathan yeah. Price if you did John Lithgow Jonathan Price switch I think that would have been ooh delicious like <laughs> being that guy <laughs> Holds up his his butternut squash soup. <laughs> James. Uh, yeah. Oh, have you have you seen a Ricochet? Uh, it's a Denzel Washington. I've not. Okay, uh, I'm making you watch that okay. someday. Okay. I'm making you watch that. Is that a nineties? <laughs> it's a it's a good solid nineties thriller uh, featuring John Lithgow versus Denzel Washington. That could be fun. It, I I think you would enjoy it quite a bit. It is '90s trash, but it's the best kind of trash. Nice. Um, anyway, we get our introduction to John Lithgow, and he is looking creepy because he's got, um, like smoker's teeth. Mm. Like he's got dentures in that make his teeth look all fucked up and like oily and and just he, gre- greasy. He looks like he's been smoking, drinking coffee, and eating shit sandwiches for the past thirty years. That's how his teeth look. Yeah, there's a lot of discoloration in there. Um, and he is watching TV, and he sees the Hong Kong Cavaliers on TV, and he has a violent reaction to that. So we right off the bat learn that he doesn't like them very much. And uh, Dr. Kikita, the Japanese doctor from the test site, uh, appears on the screen, and he flips out even more. So apparently he has a specific vendetta towards him. Uh, and his home is a mess, by the way. In fact, I couldn't tell if this was a, a residence or a mental ward. This is a mental <laughs> ward. It took a minute because I'm like, man, this place looks like shit. But you could hear like someone talking overhead. I'm like, I think this is a mental ward. But he has like an entire ward to himself. Oh. Um, and he has people doing him favors in there. <laughs> he has such a mad scientist look about him, which which it makes sense. This is kind of what he is in the movie. He's a mad scientist. But yeah, he's not on screen enough for it to, to be that much fun. Yeah, he. it's very strange, actually, because he gets this big introduction here, and we even get a flashback here in just mm-hmm. a second, and then he disappears, and he doesn't come back until, like, the last ten minutes of the movie. Yeah. It's he bizarre. Gets, he gets, like, a quick on-screen, he gets, like, 30 seconds real quick in the middle of the movie, and then he's back out, and then, yeah, not until yeah. the end of the movie. And the way he's playing this role, it's like, this is actually, like, everything that you've been saying while we've been talking it's like he's bringing exactly what this movie kind of needed it was yeah. just some life energy energy, <laughs> energy. 
Um, and speaking of energy, uh, he flips out when he's watching this TV and he finds like some gadget under a bunch of like probably like porno magazines or something he has stored <laughs> in the corner. And uh, he hooks it up to like his ear and his tongue and he electrocutes himself. Yeah. And uh, this cuts us to a flashback. So, like, we zoom into his head and flashback to the past. And we see three doctors toast over some experiment in a warehouse. Um, favorite filming location of many a low-budget film. Um, and uh, this is actually kind of a cool set. In fact, we'll revisit it later for the finale. Um, and we see, essentially, a, a uh, earlier version of the experiment that we saw at the beginning of the movie, complete with rocket sled. And fucking Lithgow uh, apparently just, like, gets ahead of himself because mm. everyone else in the room is like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, like, it's not ready yet. But for some reason, he gets really excited, and uh, he gets into the rocket sled, and uh, same deal with the laser and stuff into a wall. Um, something goes wrong, and instead of going through the wall, he gets lodged halfway into the wall. Yeah. <laughs> so his upper half is stuck in the wall, and his bottom half is, like, kicking and screaming. And uh, he gets harassed, uh, in what capacity, I don't really know, um, by a bunch of those uh, Land of the Lost-looking aliens, the the Electroids. And uh, they pull him out, and apparently he's been possessed or has transformed into one of the aliens, but we can't see that. He looks the same, except for his hair is all fucked up, Mm -hmm. but his behavior suggests that he's not himself anymore. Um, And I did love, there's an acting moment here where he he flips out, he does like, a Frankenstein's monster thing like rah, rah, and he's like thrashing around and he runs out to the door but then before he leaves he has to like turn and like do like a wolfman look to everyone yeah. in the room <laughs> and then he slips out it's like that was completely needless but I'm so glad it's there yeah. <laughs> he's lost his marbles and then we uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we cut back to the mental institution and uh, a younger not young a younger Jonathan Banks is uh, talking to him and now we're under the impression like oh this is he's in a ward like he's he's really lost it but I don't understand how he ended up there if he's got this crazy strength and he's able to turn it on with the like electricity how did they get him in there you got me man it doesn't make any sense <laughs> um, but yeah Mr. Jonathan Banks funny enough I just saw him uh, die in a Steven Seagal movie oh. a couple days ago um, under Siege 2, he's he's like one of the bad guys driving the train. <laughs> and we do get a shot of him right before the train collides with the other train. And for some reason, he's smiling. <laughs> it makes no goddamn sense. But it's pretty great that they decided to put like those two frames of him looking pretty pleased about that train running into his fucking face. Um, anyway, uh, a package arrives, and like you said, Jonathan Banks delivers it to him. And apparently he has... Lithgow just has autonomy here. He can just do whatever he pleases, even though it's apparently a mental ward. Um, So he gets some sort of package, and what we glean from this conversation is that the creation and utilization of this overthruster device, the flux capacitor thing, is something he's been waiting for. Basically, Mm. his his experiment failed, um, but he's been waiting for someone to perfect it so he can repeat it. For what purpose, we don't know, but he's very excited that Dr. Hikita finished the product and now he can like jack it from him. Um, this is his which, yeah. bumping his head. This is his bumping his head in the tub. <laughs> yes. Um, so speaking of Dr. Hikita though, we see him at a uh, backstage and uh, this was a scene that Kyle uh, had told me off air. Uh, he was eagerly anticipating 
Oh, I didn't know it was... You want to describe some of this here? (laughs) Yeah, I was, like, I personally love uh, when the movie stops for uh, there to be a performance on stage. It's a very 80s thing to do, and it didn't really make it out of the 80s. Um, St. Elmo's Fire is probably one of the best examples that I can think of. Um, But if you've ever watched a Vanilla Ice, if you've watched Vanilla Ice do anything, like, he pops up in that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. He just comes in there to do his his fucking dance, and it's like, oh, this is great. You Um, know what the best part of that is, Kyle? What? Like, the... The way they the way they edit that scene, he's in the middle of a concert, mm-hmm. and then I think it's uh, Raphael flies through the wall, and then everybody's like, "Oh shit, it's a fucking turtle man!" Mm-hmm. And then we cut to Vanilla Ice, and the music stopped, and then the music comes back, and he just starts like bobbing Dancing. his head, and he's yeah. like, "I I can do something with this beat." Yeah. So it in the fiction of that universe, we're to believe that ninja rap was improvised i'm totally (laughs) he improvised the ninja rap he's truly a musical genius Uh, (laughs) teen witch does it uh it's a little it's uh it's a fun one it's you have to have saxophone and i figured out that's the key that's what makes these so much fun is it has to have saxophone um and all the ones i mentioned minus vanilla ice have saxophone oh i think team Witch probably has the best saxophone of any of them i'm gonna send you that clip i think you'll really enjoy that um but yeah i was i was ready for it like he's got so some of the uh the hong kong cavaliers are in the band uh the blonde dude i don't know his name it doesn't matter um he looked. He reminded me of the dude from Green Room, this, the uh, the lead singer from that punk band. I don't know why he oh, just. Oh yeah, I can he, see that. Yeah. He just reminded me of him. Uh, but yeah, they get up on stage, and he's got three dudes that are already up there. And dude, they've been fucking waiting for this band to come play. But he's got three dudes that all look like bikers slash bouncers. Uh, I don't know who's on the drums. Um, one of the other the Cavaliers play the instrument, and Peter Weller gets up there and just starts fucking shredding. And uh, he's having a good time. And then he just stops. Like I'm like, he's going to start singing. He's going to start singing. And then he just stops. And I'm like, what the... F-? I was so ready for him to start singing. But then it's, it just stops the dead. And he's just like, hey. Hey, is somebody crying out there? Hey, are you not having a good time? Hey, you. It's really... Cr- I don't know. It's really creepy. Uh, <laughs> how he just kind of stops this. And uh, Ellen Barkin, Penny, is uh, sitting at a table crying. And he's just like, why, why, why are you crying? Uh, and this is where I had the epiphany. I'm like, I bet Steven Seagal's definitely hit on a crying woman before. <laughs> you think? Jeez. <laughs> While married. <laughs> Apparently he hit on Katherine Heigl on the set of Under Seas oh, 2. I think there's a picture of him fondling, like, uh, grabbing her, like, fondling her at, like, a, uh, like, a carp, like a, some kind of carpet photo shoot. I would not be surprised, but um, it needs to be said during this scene. Um, you you described this as being kind of weird. Um, I do remember hearing like an eighty yard line of of the band members actually just saying that this is weird. This is weird. <laughs> <laughs> also, I noticed there's a guy playing two saxophones at the same time. Oh, I'll <laughs> two tell you what I do. At the same time. <laughs> two chicks. That was at the pretty same impressive. Um, also, it probably we should probably point out the fact that. Uh, Buckaroo Banzai's general look throughout most of this movie is essentially like Buddy Holly. Um, he looks like he has like a rockabilly kind of look to him. He he's dressed like Pee Wee Herman. The rest yeah. of the film, yeah, he's yeah. just missing the red bow tie. 
Yeah, and but sometimes he has like the horn rim glasses, and he, mm-hmm. he's always kind of got his hair tousled and greased in some capacity. So he looks like a person out of time. Like mm-hmm. he looks like he's from the 1950s, whereas this film is from the 1980s, when presumably the future. Um, but yeah, <laughs> in, instead of singing like a like a rock song as as you would expect from his like face melting guitar solo when he hops up on the stage, mm. we get a romantic piano ballad, and it's a little weird. It's um, a little fucking weird. Peter Willard seems to have a decent singing voice. It's fine. Um, it's fine. It's not amazing, but it's good enough. Um, I did like that he actually did sing. Um, and eventually the band starts backing him up, and somehow she ends up pulling a gun, and, uh, yeah, she, she like, either threatens to shoot herself or the band. And I did like that, uh, that there's just kind of, like, a subtle moment here where she pulls out the gun and someone stops her from firing it. Like, I think she shoots at the ceiling, and instantly, everyone in the band pulls out a fucking gun. <laughs> they are armed to the teeth. <laughs> yeah, just instantly, without hesitation, everyone in the band. <laughs> I think the I think the Joker's clan has less weapons than this. I, I'm sorry, Two Face's clan has less guns than this. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, dude, so, this is gonna help- be our DOS boot. Like, this is gonna be <laughs> our three hour and forty minutes. <laughs> Well, let's keep it moving here. So, just to gloss over things a bit, uh, John Lithgow escapes. Uh, he kills Jonathan Banks by mm-hmm. snapping his neck, and he Dead. demonstrates that he has superhuman strength. It's yeah. a pretty good neck snap. It's a good neck snap, yeah. It's a one-handed neck snap. It's, it's a Bane. To, it's Bane, yeah. Well, I was actually thinking Uncle Fester from uh, Adam's Family when he <laughs> turns Stan and die yeah. upside down. <laughs> oh, they've been in another movie together. I didn't even think about that. Oh, shit, yeah. yeah. That's another connection. Connections. Revolutions. Revolutions. And anyway, he tries to... He makes a phone call to someone named Dr. Big Booty. <laughs> oh, I wrote down some of the names as we move forward. Yes, Dr. Big Booty. And like I said, as Kyle had pointed out, um, his accent is just... It's a mishmash of Italian and Russian. So it's like, Dr. Big Booty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's kind of like Tim Curry in Congo. It's yes. Like, oh, gosh. That's it's like, that is not a Romanian accent. But it's an accent, and I guess he's going to do it. <laughs> that movie would be totally rewatchable if he did not have that accent. It's just stupid fun, but every time he talks, I'm like, you were the saving grace of this film. You just did not have to do that accent. It's really, he, a, it, it sucks. How, how do you take on a role and do zero, zero research? <laughs> like, zero. He read the script. Oh, no, no, he just saw that fucking Bruce Campbell was in it. He's like, oh, this is not, we don't have to take this seriously. There's Bruce Campbell's in this. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, on his way out, uh, Lithgow, after making this call to Dr. Big Booty, um, he, uh, there's a Buckaroo Banzai arca- arcade machine in mm-hmm. the clinic that he, uh, he puts his hands on, he jacks a whole bunch of electricity from it. So apparently, like like Kyle pointed out, maybe he gets his strength from electricity, uh, th- or maybe it's like a drug or something. Like, credit, I don't know. credit due to Steph, because she pointed that out. She's like, I think he gets his... Like I think he gets his power from electricity. Like that seems to be that seems to be the case at least right here. Yeah, sure, I'll go with that. It's, I mean, Fine. King Kong in King Kong versus Godzilla, same deal. Maybe <laughs> this really is high art, Trevor, because it it's it's just inconclusive. You, you, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. Maybe this is just high <laughs> art, and it's just presented to us as a children's film from the '80s, and we're just not we're not on the level. Uh, so we cut to a tour bus, and this is kind of like the uh, 
the Buckaroo Banzai roving headquarters. This mm-hmm. is actually kind of a cool concept. I kind of like this. I I love you know how much I love the idea of like working in like a secret van like that, like stakeout. I could the not get in. Yeah, you're you're the van guy. I'd you're love dusty. to be the van guy. I'm Dusty, the the French guys from Godzilla '98. Uh, it just it always looks like Jack, fun. Jack Black in Enemy of the State. <laughs> Bad black coffee from a cafe and just a fucking carton of cigarettes just sitting there listening for hours. I love that idea. I could not get into this one. I was very upset. It just did not work for me. Okay, so we're in the tour bus and. Uh, Apparently, Penny was an old flame of some sort, because we do see, like, a photo of her and Bucker Bonsai together. Um, and the way this bus is assembled is, like, we have this back, back like, living area that's set up like a Japanese living room, um, complete with a sword stand. So there's, like, katanas in the room. And Bucker Bonsai is, like, dressed up in, like, hakama and, like, a gi and everything. And I was like... Motherfucker didn't use a sword in this whole movie. <laughs> he did <laughs> like, not. How, how dare you, movie? How dare you tease me with an opening crawl that says he is an expert martial artist? I don't think he throws a single punch in anger in this entire movie. Predators has a samurai sword fight. Yes. That happens right. on another planet. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's entirely unwarranted. And yet it's there. That's actually Do not one of the, tease me with a fucking sword and then not use it. That's actually one of the better parts of Predators is that scene. That part is embarrassing. But it's at the em- same time, I'm glad it's there. Because, it's, it's, you know, it's it's something that needed to happen. Somebody needed... We needed to see what happened to Billy. Yeah. Because we never actually got to. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Uh, the tour bus, though, has this, like, backdoor, like, living area that's like a Japanese living room. But there's also... A control panel complete with, like, people manning radar stations and stuff. Um, yeah, sure. And uh, also we get some exposition here about a radioactive cloud-like mass over New England. Uh, put a pin in that. Really? Um, you caught that? I did not catch that. I tried, man. <laughs> so Dude. we pick up Sydney, who is uh, Jeff Goldblum, and he is in his uniform uh, mm-hmm. that he will wear for the majority of this film. And it is, Kyle, do you want to describe what Jeff Goldblum is wearing? Uh, he's dressed like, um, oh gosh, what's her name from Toy Story 2? Uh, Jesse. Jesse, yeah, he's dressed like Jesse from Toy Story 2. It's Jesse meets Cowboy Curtis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cowboy <laughs> Curtis. Yeah, there are p- the Pee Wee Herman connections here, dude. Yeah, yeah. When did uh, although Pee-wee he does. He- he doesn't have uh, he doesn't have the Jerry curl though. Uh, no. This was uh, this was pre uh, the fly Jeff Goldblum, so he did not have the long flowing greasy locks yet. I feel like you'd have to be very careful about how you talk to Lawrence Fishburne when you meet him. Like I feel like he's got half a filmography he's willing to talk to you about, and then half a filmography he is not willing to talk to you about. And be very careful about which movies you choose to talk to him about. <laughs> I think I think the easiest way to get off on the wrong foot would just be to call him Lair- Larry. <laughs> he was like, a, hey larry what's up and he just shoots you that look that's like oh no <laughs> get, like apocalypse now boys in the hood i mean you could give him them even the first matrix movie i'm sure he'd be willing to talk to you the king of new york maybe not so much. is that the right one with christopher walken is he is that the one he's in oh, i think you, you, i don't know i think it's king of new york but yeah i'm like there's a few that just like don't d- d- don't don't bring up Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> don't bring that up, please. <laughs> Picturing him having like a posse that swarms. Like, like so that's what you want to do. Comes up. You want to get off on the wrong foot? 
<laughs> okay. Like, Could you step away from Mr. Fishburne? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, Jeff Goldblum is in a red and white cowboy outfit, and he is a head taller than everyone in this movie, except maybe Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown's a big guy. Big guy. They um, they try to frame him a few times. Like there's there's some I noticed. I think maybe in this in, in this scene, like they've kind of got him framed to where everybody else. Is standing where they're at his height, but you can tell the way he's standing that he's still towering over them. But they try well, to. This introductory shot, he meets them in front of the New Brunswick Police Station, which yeah. it's a weird place to meet someone. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, in this introductory shot, it's from like a low angle looking up, mm-hmm. presumably so we can see the sign, the signage posted out front. But like you had said, it's all it also doubles as an excuse to conceal the fact that he's a giant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but. I got the feeling that they liked having him on set. And Jeff Goldblum does get to get some Goldblum-isms in here that he I really appreciate, but they're so few and far between and so subtle. Yeah, he doesn't get enough. Uh, uh, he doesn't get to ramble on really, uh, really, really, really fast and then uh, uh, stop. It's. I'll, I'll point out all the ones I spotted because they, I did genuinely give like a... <clears throat> <laughs> like not a, like a guffaw, but just like a snort. And this was one of them where... Uh, Bonsai goes into the police station and he leaves his his Hong Kong Cavaliers outside to talk with Goldblum and one of them is standing off to the side and asks like like looks him up and down he's like so where are your spurs at and without even turning his his head he's looking at the other one Goldblum just says what is he making fun of me me? (laughs) I do like that (laughs) I was like that is probably an improvised line Mm -hmm. he probably just did that because that seemed appropriate and he probably thinks the script is ridiculous which it is um Anyway, all that really happens here in the cell is that Bonsai meets with Penny, who has been imprisoned because she pulled a fucking gun at a concert. <laughs> um, and we just get some dialogue between the two of them, uh, indicating that there may be some shared history between them. And uh, this is also where we get more evidence to the fact that Buckaroo Bonsai, one of the running gags in the script that's meant to be probably hilarious, but is just kind of nothing is that Buckaroo Banzai is essentially the most famous person in in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen an arcade machine bearing his name. We've seen comic books. Uh, he has a fucking radar station built into his tour bus. And apparently he can get people out of prison just by asking. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, he does exactly that. And uh, we get a funny little line here. that it, it's, it's sweet and it's, it's goofy. And I don't really know why it's here, but um, the... The guy with the Billy Idol hair, the mm-hmm. blonde one, um, he asks he asks him for his jacket so he can give it to Ellen Barkin because she's dressed kind of skimpily, and he's and he's just like, why why me? Because you know it looks like there's other people who can offer their jackets. And Peter Weller just like without skipping a beat just says, because you're perfect. Because you're perfect. And then the guy smiles at him. And he's like, you have a point there. <laughs> this, <laughs> it's like, this is so weird, but it kind of works. This same gag <laughs> happens with uh, the Johns as well. Like he's like, why me? He's like, because it could be booby trapped. It, it it's a joke that happens like three times in this movie. Yeah, it, it's very strange, but it kind of tickled me just a little bit. But anyway, we we cut to a press conference, and uh, Peter Weller's in his Buddy Holly outfit. I think now he has like red horn rim glasses. It's very uh, audacious. Mm-hmm. Um, but we get a huge exposition dump about like him and his parents uh, and uh and dr kikita d- devoting themselves to dimensional exploration uh we get a really cool shot of a miniature a- alien ship orbiting the planet 
And uh, I really like the design of the ship. It's very unique. It looks semi-organic. It's kind of like purple with what look like Christmas lights embedded in it. Um, it's neat. It's very unique. I liked it. And uh, during this this press conference or whatever, though, we see Dan Hedaya and Vincent Chiavelli in the crowd. And I was like, oh, they're going to do something. They're going to do something. Like, you, like th- those two guys can give you quite a bit. And if you do not make use of them, which they don't really, um, you're, you're fucking blowing it because they're both great. You know, um, who, you know who I wish who had gotten more play as an actor who I find like very, very funny was Carl Bone from uh, Goodfellas. The one. Which one was he? He was the one with kind of the kind of the afro a little bit. He's the one when they go kill stacks. He's the one who's like making the coffee, or he's the one hanging in the meat truck who's frozen. Do you remember him? Is that the? Is that a? What the brother-in-law from the wedding singer? Yeah, because I was thinking back to his scenes in the map. Like he's so fucking funny in that movie. I'm like, I wish he would have more like comedic roles because he was really funny in that movie. He was good in the wedding singer. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. Like he was really good in that. I'm like, God, man, I wish he would have done more stuff. I mean, they could just have like a sight gag of someone whacking him on top of the head with a baseball bat and the bat breaking and him being like, "What's up with that? Like, are you trying to hurt me?" I think he would be funny as uh, like a substitute teacher kind of guy like they do like a movie or a show about him being a substitute teacher and just coming from a different decade like he he's like you know i'm no longer a mobster i've got to you know i I went to college for a little bit i got a degree in education you know just for fun like so i'm gonna be a substitute teacher that's what he does but he's just like like hits the kids and curses and just really him doing like sex ed or something (laughs) yeah him doing sex ed him like saving the community community center with like a lemonade stand that doubles as like mm-hmm. know, not not drug dealing but some sort of racketeering or something but it's like of like funny mob funny mob shenanigans are going on in the background where he's trying to like he's kind of in the witness protection program but people keep finding out where he's at so he has to like try to See, keep if if you had pitched that in the mid 90s or the late 90s i think you could have gotten that off the air like uh, off the ground easily like that we was were, the time we were taking the piss out of the mafia in the late oh, 90s for sure. analyze this which i i do i'd like analyze this analyze that which i don't like you can you can skip that hard yeah analyze this was a big hit in our uh, in our household and even uh even mafia the i think it was a zucker brothers film or at least akin to a zucker brothers film was not bad i didn't see that yeah because well like I think Scorsese. Who did Once Upon a Time in uh, America? Oh, uh, Robert Rodriguez. Well, no, like, that was a. Was that Peckinpah? I'm not sure, but like through the 70s and 80s, we had just like, oh my god, with the Italian mafia movies. No, Once like, Upon a Time in America, I think was also Scorsese. Was I don't I think to, it, I, I don't think it was Scorsese. I could Once be wrong. Once Upon a Time in the West was Peckinpah. But the just the epics, like at that point, like the Italian mafia epics that were at that time, like like just come on, dude. How many hours can you spend on the same story? <laughs> They're all compelling. They, Don't get they, me wrong. They reached their limit, and that's why that's why you get the fallout where you start getting parodies of it. I'm just saying they they're, they were all compelling. Like they all they all have something to offer. Like they're all watchable. But yeah, no, they're all great. But man, anyway, decade. Uh, so. During this press conference, like I said, we have two shady figures in the form of Dan Hedaya and Vincent Chiavelli. And uh, we also get the reveal of the brain thingy in a beaker that is apparently important. I don't exactly know why. Um, And then Bonsai gets a call from the president. And they escort him backstage. And uh, there's a row of telephone booths backstage. I've never seen an indoor telephone booth before. Um, 
I've seen like subway telephone booths and stuff, but never like a backstage one. (laughs) Well, we didn't grow up in the '80s, so telephone booths may have been way more like just may more way more prominent like in places that we didn't even think of. It's maybe it's the Bill and Ted in me, but like I always picture it as requiring like open air to work or something. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so he hops on the phone here, and we see that the aliens in orbit are monitoring the call. And for some reason, they're all wearing Hulk Hogan-esque feather boas. Yeah. And uh, Bonsai gets a shock through the telephone, and he has a revelation, and he falls yeah. on his back, and he starts doing that Peter Weller acting, where he's like, oh, God, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> It's that weird voice that he gets when he screams. And, uh, well, it's a Borg crank call, because they yes. tell him it's the president. <laughs> it, I've been calling these aliens the Borg, but yeah, it's an alian prank call. <laughs> they crank yanked him. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he spasms on the floor, and uh, we see that the uh, the spaceship in, in orbit launches a pod down to Earth. Uh, and then uh, we head back to the press conference, and there's a bunch of alien interlopers in there. And what's interesting here is that Bonsai, almost immediately after being shocked and falling on his back on the floor, um, knows what to do. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, he just knows. He just knows that um, now... Like apparently there are aliens in our midst, and now he has the tools to see him, see them. So the shock that he received scrambled his brain in such a way that he can now see these aliens. So he heads back to the press conference, and he sees that, of course, the two weird guys in the audience, Dan Hedaya and Vincent Chiavelli, are in fact these... Uh, they're kind of like orange-red-colored aliens with bug eyes, and they got wrinkly yeah. foreheads. Um and yeah, there's alien interlopers in the conference, and uh, Christopher Lloyd is there, <laughs> uh, and he takes a he takes like some sort of secretary, some presidential secretary or something hostage. And uh, what's at first I thought this was totally random, and then I I remembered there was an offhand line of dialogue that probably should have been more I don't know given more space to breathe, but they do mention that this space that they're doing the press conference in is also going to be used for like some sort of motorcycle show Mm -hmm. um which explains why there's a random motorcycle in the hallway and outside um so we get a uh really tepid kind of nothing vehicle chase it's not even a chase really it's just like somebody leaves and somebody goes after them but they i don't even think they ever see each other (laughs) it's just um all the aliens pile into a van and uh peter weller hops on he steals a motorcycle but he's buckaroo bonsai so nobody really cares he doesn't even get like a good little quip here or one-liner he's like hey you can't ride a motorcycle it was part i'm like i'm waiting for him like what's he gonna say nothing he just drives the motorcycle yeah missed opportunity I mean, I, I i wrote it off as just like you know all he had to do is say i'm buckaroo bonsai and the guy would be like oh well in that case <laughs> like whatever <laughs> Um, then we get some uh, like 1950s sci-fi tropes here in the form of uh, a couple hunters poking around in the in the woods with yeah. a dog. Um, this, like I said, feels like a 1950s B movie, and uh, the pod that came from the alien spacecraft comes comes down over them. And we get some really poorly blue-screened um, miniature effects of this pod flying over them. They shoot at it, um, and yeah, they pursue it. And meanwhile, uh, Christopher Lloyd is driving the van, and uh, his uh, his buddies, Vincent Chiavelli and Dan Hedaya, are calling like calling on him to turn around because apparently they need to intercept this pod that's crashing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we we cut to night, and we we get to the pod, and these two hunters find it. So they it, apparently it did crash and everything. 
And uh, this this prop is kind of impressive because it just in terms of scale, because it's just it's like massive rolling prop that <clears throat> it's kind of akin to like the the boulder from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm-hmm. but it's like fleshy and kind of like purplish, and it like rolls towards them almost like a a killer tomato, and it looks like borderline dangerous honestly because like is it gonna stop (laughs) (laughs) it looks like a big egg testicle like if that's what i a big egg testicle ufo sure we'll go with that (laughs) um but a uh a person with dreadlocks Mm -hmm. comes out of the roof (laughs) i was like okay sure i'm trying i'm trying my best man (laughs) he comes out of the roof and then he like just turns around, looks at them, falls down, and dies. And then he's like turning into an alien, and the guys are like, "What the fuck?" Like they got their guns and everything. They're like, "What the fuck is this thing?" And it's like he's turning into something else. Like they're I don't know what their dialogue was kind of funny. Them going back and forth, but then another dude jumps out the back, and he's got like a, a box of cannolis kind of thing tied to a yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> Um, how was this movie pitched? Because I had to look it up at this point. I'm like, is this really based off a comic book? And it's not. It's not based off a comic book. I just don't understand, like, what was the pitch idea for this movie? I'm not sure, but I want to say that this movie came out a few years earlier than it probably could have benefited from, I guess. Because, mm. I mean, we've, we've talked about uh, the Tim Burton effect before. Where it's like... There was an era of Hollywood where you could get by on quirkiness, kookiness, and very, very, very strong production design. Mm-hmm. And that could take you very, very far. Um, this, however, is a totally different beast. Where This, this reeks of... Uh, remember uh, in Seinfeld when they had their pilot that they were pitching, mm-hmm. and they yeah. had exact they had like exactly one producer who had confidence in them, and as yeah. soon as that guy left, it was over. Because it's cr- everyone else in the room was like, "This is dumb." <laughs> this, uh, Seinfeld was on my mind the entire time because I'm like, "This has no- like there's this is about nothing." And also, it feels like a Seinfeld episode because if you don't watch the first three minutes of any Seinfeld episode, you have absolutely no idea what's happening in the episode. The jokes don't land unless you've seen the episode before. You have to get it's so important to get that beginning part of the the episode. Otherwise, it makes absolutely no sense. Um, but this is where I had to. Uh, like stop and like take note of like what is happening in the film so far. So I'll... Buckaroo is a surgeon slash rock star slash scientist slash comic book character who's become electrically charged after the Borg crank call him at a press conference. The Borg steal his professor friend and give chase. Meanwhile, a Minoc creature has crash landed in a ball egg that contains a young black man with dreadlocks and a box. Um, John Parker. So that's where we are in the story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like that That's a, a good summation of the events in the movie. And I think that's actually probably how this got greenlit. Is that there There are some people, there's a specific type of nerd that, uh, <laughs> that finds things like that, like absurdism to be delightful. Mm-hmm. Where it's like... I've seen Doctor Who. <laughs> maybe I don't have enough experience with that. But like what I mean is... Um, you see this in like the Marvel movies a lot these days where um, they do a lot of things where they poke fun at the general absurdity of what's happening. Where it's like they they take the piss out of their own story. Mm. And I think it, it tickles the audience because it's it's like the movie's winking at you where it's like, yes, we know it's dumb, but, you know, bear with us. Um, 
But then there's an extreme example of that where you have something like this, where it's like the entire thing is just meant to be incomprehensible and silly and strange. And there, there definitely, there is an audience for that. It's just like, haha, lol, random. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Buckaroo Banzai gets a call from, well, he calls Clancy Brown. And uh, we get a name drop here in the form of Yo-Yo Dine Propulsion System. Uh, put a pin in that. Um, and the, your note, I'm guessing, is referencing the fact that uh, the alien van, mm-hmm. um, so with Christopher Lloyd and the others, uh, they arrive at the crash site, and they're now disguised as humans, um, which uh, I don't remember exactly what point in the story it's explained to us. But basically what, what you need to understand is that the aliens look like aliens but are only able to be perceived by people um, if they receive... There's some sort of, like formula or in the form of like an electrical shock or something that allows you to see through their disguise so um they all show up looking like humans so these hunters are not wise to the fact that they are aliens um so they introduce themselves as working for yo-yo dine um which um, basically i guess that's the the front that the aliens are all using they all work for this company um and then we get a, a weird moment where um, there's, there was an offhand line of dialogue saying that uh, Dr. Hikita was abducted by the aliens and, like, stuffed in a box. Yeah. But we don't see any of that, so we just see him come out of a box at some point, and it's like, oh, what? <laughs> so if you weren't paying attention, you'd be very confused here. I was confused anyway. Um, but this begins a running gag where pretty much any time uh, Peter Weller touches anyone, uh, they receive a static shock. Uh and this is also where we get to see like more of his uh, his Scooby Squad um, in the form of a, a little kid that he calls to like help him out with some stuff. Um, so the kid and his dad are both also part of the the group apparently. The dad is Steve Jessup from uh, City Slickers. The yes, we're black and we're dentists. Let's not make a big deal out of it. It's the dad. He's like, uh, they're not making a deal out of it. You are. <laughs> forgot about that see for some reason i remember the second one better <laughs> really i haven't even seen the second one i love that for the first city slickers is so much fun uh, i i want to say they're both fun the the major difference though is that in the second one instead of bruno kirby you get john lovitz mm. <laughs> and I, john lovitz can be pretty great <laughs> he has his moments he can be funny yeah i like mm. him bruno Kirby's one of those actors that's like i think he's underappreciated he is. I think he's. I think he's a very good actor. He just never really got the spotlight. No, he when he pops up in things and you notice him, you're like, oh wow, he's yeah, that's 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 Bruno Kirby. Um, the last thing I remember really liking him in was Sleepers. He had some good moments in Sleepers. He had some rough moments in Sleepers. I was gonna say like he was good for the movie, and he's not a good person necessarily. He's not the worst person in that movie. Let's put it that way. Yeah, <laughs> I mean we all person. know who that is. Yeah. <laughs> but um. Anyway, uh, this is where Bonsai tells us about this this formula that he has scrawled on his hand that allows him to see the alien, so he's like trying to find a way to share it with everyone. And this is also where we get the name drop for the aliens, uh, that being Lectroids from Planet 10 by way of the 8th Dimension. Um, also, I noticed that uh, the cops roll up to the crash site, and one of them is Taggart from Beverly Hills Cop. Um, that made me laugh a little bit, just because I like Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> Anyway, uh, the band uh, bring Penny to their bunkhouse, which is apparently like a secondary uh, headquarters or something. And, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. This whole thing is just, like, falling apart as I'm trying Mm -hmm. to explain it. (laughs) 
this, so this is really where we could like step on the gas and get through some of this because this is the set like we're gearing up for the third act of the film and this gearing up takes a while a while um so yeah the the aliens at the crash site they they open up the pod um, i did like that dan hadaya is assigned to open the pod and he basically does so with his bare hands so mm-hmm. he's just like whacking the side of the pod like there's no door or anything he just smashes it open and uh that bonsai is like there he's he's kind of like snooping on them a little bit they give chase it's a really lame chase although there is a nut kick in there mm-hmm. um and he escapes via rope ladder and helicopter and what's weird here is that we hear the kid's voice speaking from the helicopter but mm-hmm. we never actually get a shot of the interior of the helicopter so part of me wanted to say that is the kid flying the helicopter? I think he's on the helicopter, but I don't think he's necessarily flying the helicopter. I mean, in the in the internal logic of the film, I wouldn't be surprised at all, but it it's just weird me. that we never actually see him, but we do hear his voice. Well, the little kid in um, uh, Temple of Doom, he's definitely driving the car, so it's very possible that this kid is flying a helicopter. Yeah, hold on to your potato. <laughs> I never really got that line, but um, I don't really get that movie, Trevor. <laughs> anyway, uh, we we all meet up at the bunkhouse, and uh, there's a fun bit where uh, everybody is everybody's kind of like trying to do some investigation into the yo-yo dine industries, and I like that uh, Jeff Goldblum is just playing the piano. <laughs> yeah, this feels like a very cozy like like clubhouse kind of yeah like it, it's like instead of, like this would be in any other blockbuster movie like the part where everybody's doing hardcore science work mm-hmm. like everybody's scrambling around like the camera's spinning and stuff but no it's like really laid back it's chill. we have our, our chunky 80s computers and then goldblum just like playing the piano <laughs> it's like really strange um and also this is what we learned that uh the the aliens are all named john and uh the alien that escaped from the pod that didn't die, the one with the uh, the box of cannolis, uh, he shows up at the bunkhouse and he is asking for an audience with Buckaroo Banzai, and he introduces himself as John Parker, and this is where we learn that they're all named John Parker, and <laughs> this is where we 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 reference War of the Worlds, yeah, seemingly needlessly, but it's a cute little moment where Jeff Goldblum's just kind of muttering to himself, and he's like. Or, or Orson Welles, and, and and somebody, somebody asks him, "You mean the old guy from the old wine commercials?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't even like, catch yes, that. Exactly. I didn't exactly. even catch that. I'm like, oh, oh my goodness! Wait till you see the outtakes. Hope, pray you lived long enough to see the outtakes from those commercials. Uh, people in this movie. Um, yeah, he says that uh, he's like, uh, "War of the Worlds uh, was a radio broadcast done by Orson Welles, and uh, uh, people thought that it was really happening, but it was actually just fake. But what if it was actually real? I guess they're equating like that. Actually, the invasion was actually this. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, he, he says something about like Orson Welles was trying to report to the populace that it was a real event happening. But then they brainwashed him later to have him take it back and say it was all a farce. Um, uh, yeah. Did, did you I, write again, down? That's all in dialogue. <laughs> did you write down any of your favorite John names? Um, probably not. But did you? I did. <laughs> uh, we've got John Big Booty, John Smallberries, and John Little John was my personal favorite. John Little John's pretty great. I like that. That, John that does John. make me smile. <laughs> John Little John. John Little John. I like that. <laughs> 
Jean-Paul, Jean-Paul. <laughs> Jean-Paul um, so, Luke Gerard. <laughs> so we get some Wonder Woman jumps here um, in the form of some aliens trying to uh, get into Buckaroo Banzai's compound here. So mm-hmm. they jump over the wall. And uh, John Parker, the the we're just probably going to call him the good alien. Um, mm-hmm. He's on their side. Uh, he gets caught. And uh, <laughs> we get to see a demonstration of some of the aliens' powers. Um, apparently, they have, like, bullet spit or something, or rocket spit. Yeah. Because <laughs> they spit at people and they die. Um, so there's a mechanic out around back, and uh, John B- Big Bootay, um, he, he'll be quick to correct you. It's not Big Booty, it's Bootay. 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 Um, that would be Christopher Lloyd. Uh, he spits at this mechanic, and he, uh, he kills him. And he goes flying. It's kind of amusing, actually. And uh, I think this is where we get the the line. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, from Vin- Vincent Chiavelli. So they're they're in this garage here, and Christopher Lloyd wants to investigate this car. He's like, there there might be the thing that we're looking for, the overthruster. It might be in there. And he tells Vincent Chiavelli, like, G- open it. And he he asks him, why me, John Big Bootay? And he he just like pauses a second. He's like. It might be booby trapped. It might be booby trapped. <laughs> and he just says, "Oh,", oh. and then he, proceeds, he just yeah. proceeds to smash it open. I was like, "That's actually kind of funny." Like, yeah, that's that's good. Um, anyway, we get that Orson Welles connection. Blah 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 blah, and uh, you get a Princess Leia esque transmission. Uh, it's delivered to us by John Parker, and we have to wear bejeweled bubble wrap masks this is where view it this is where i'm like i feel like this was a kid wrote this or this is just a group of dads putting on a movie for a kid because it's like bubble wrap and then like little saran wrap eyes it's just weird yeah uh, it looks cheap it looks dumb it's not explained at all so you just kind of have to assume that that's the reason why they're wearing all of them um but yeah we get a jamaican princess leia and uh, it's it's a hologram video, and uh, she threatens to shoot a particle weapon at Smolensk uh, if they do not figure this shit out by sunset. Um, so now we have a bit of a ticking clock here and an international incident on our hands. Mm-hmm. Um, cut to Penny freaking out over essentially nothing um, because the movie doesn't care. I can't care because um, she's in like. Buckaroo Banzai's dwelling, she finds the photo of them together, and she's like, oh, I, I don't understand. That's me, but it's not me. And uh, he determines that he married her twin sister who had died previously. And this, yeah. is, this is the kind of shit that's like, this is funny to somebody, probably the person who wrote this shit, but not to me. I do not find this amusing where this is very alienating, where the movie is referencing things that I'm not aware of, nor do I have any means to care about it, because, again, the movie can't be bothered to care about itself. No, the, the movie does telling, not care. <laughs> yeah, the movie cares about very little, unfortunately. Uh, fortunately, the actors seem to care. Um, they do. They Everybody showed up to play. Nobody's lazy here, which is nice. Um, but it, I feel the need to reference Leonard Part 6 here. Um, because it tried, it's a Bill Cosby movie, and uh, I told you off air that I've, we we can talk about this Bill Cosby product because this is often regarded as one of the worst movies ever made. Mm. I know I know we generally don't talk about Bill Cosby anymore, but anyway, like the core concept of Leonard Part Six was that it's called Leonard Part Six, and there are no Le- there are no Leonard's Part One through Five. Um, so a lot of the script. Like, a lot of the humor in the script revolved around the idea of 
oh, it's the sixth movie. Everybody who's watching this movie will obviously know everything that happened in Leonard Part 1 through 5, mm-hmm. but there are no other movies. So you're completely lost all the time, and it's just a shitty, not funny movie. And unfortunately, Buckaroo Banzai suffers from that a little bit, where it's like it's intentionally pitching jokes over your head, Yeah, and I don't like that. It feels, I don't know, not condescending, but it feels like I'm being talked down to in some way which is exactly condescending but whatever (laughs) it's condescending but it's you know it's like somebody's telling you you don't know shit about art but what you're looking at isn't art it's just nonsense and it's a little frustrating because it's like you're insulting my intelligence like this is you're condescending but it's not it's you have nothing (laughs) you have nothing you've got (laughs) well and i mean when it comes to absurdism and whatnot there's there's absurdist humor but then there's also like Dadaism, where it's like we're intentionally making this not make sense. Mm-hmm. This is intention. This is intentionally designed to be alienating and frustrating. Uh, and if you're game for it, sure. If mm-hmm. you're not, then uh, we usually take care to slap a label on the cover that tells you what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is just kind of like, I don't know what you're doing, but it's not working. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Big Boutte makes a move here. Uh, he goes after the doctor, Dr. Hikita, and uh, he jumps his assistant, and I think he puts, like, a, a spider thing on his neck. Yeah. Um, which is kind of glossed over, but it's apparently a weapon that these these alien electroids use. Um, we get a funny bit where Banzai tries to kiss Penny, but uh, he gives her a static shock before he can really, you know, get to smooching. Mm-hmm. Um, we go, like storming through the compound looking for the aliens because somehow we become aware that like we're under attack or something and yeah we find the spider thing latched onto this assistant's neck he, he is dead he's very mm-hmm. dead and uh we we have like a, a little bit of a bug hunt here <laughs> um, uh, it doesn't go on very long thankfully uh, it's not terribly exciting but um bonsai is like stalking the corridors and stuff and they give jeff goldblum a gun which i don't i would not trust him with a gun i'm sorry no. <laughs> Um, cowboy outfit or not, like Jeff Goldblum is, he's, he's all sorts of wiry and gangly. He's neurotic. I would not want him armed. I'm sorry. The aliens get the overthruster. I don't think they keep it very long. Uh, they lose it at some point. I think Clancy Brown goes down at some point. Yeah. He gets paralyzed by the spider thing. Um, we, we actually get a legit good Goldblum gag here where they're, like stalking through the labs and he's with one of the Hong Kong Cavaliers and without really moving his eye line at all Goldblum has his gun at the ready and he just says why is there a watermelon there and the guy's <laughs> response is I'll tell you later and again that, that like speaks to the core concept of the movie where it's like they're not going to tell you later mm-hmm. <laughs> but apparently you know in the fiction of the universe like there's a reason there's a watermelon there but it's just like it's a very Goldblumism where he's just like why is there a watermelon there <laughs> can't I'm, I'm sorry i can't leave it alone i just i, I need to bring it up <laughs> but anyway uh penny has the overthruster she gets i think captured by vincent chivelli mm-hmm. uh, clancy brown is like told that there's no cure i don't think he dies though so that doesn't really make sense um and yeah we're told that only buckaroo bonsai and dr kikita can see the the alien electroids for what they are and yeah uh, we cut to the president and 
Do you want to describe his office, Kyle? <laughs> yeah, it, I think so. This reminded me we had um, City Slickers record on recorded on tape. And whoever recorded it missed the running of the bulls. So I never knew what was happening. It just starts with that cartoon intro. So it does, it opens to him at like a proctologist because he had gotten like, oh, I think he had gotten a bull horn in the ass or like up the ass or something like that. Um, so he was getting stitches. And that immediately came to mind because that's like, it's him in frame and he's like on a bed like this. But the president is like hanging upside down from what looks like a hospital bed. And I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what's happening. He's just weirdly laying like in an upside down bed. Yeah, he's he's strapped into a gurney that I think is is a uh, utilized um, for spine injuries. Gotcha. Or spine spinal like recovery or operations because um, in Dragon the Bruce Lee story, um, there's a part in that movie where he gets kicked in the back which is their explanation for how he gets his spine jacked up. And he ends up in one of these beds. Also, it reminded me of Dark Man, where he's on a, a rotating, like, motorized gurney uh, after he, well, right before he turns into Dark Man. We should find a way to do that quote from uh, Back to the Future 2 by uh, Jason Lee. Is that his name? Brandon Lee. Jason Scott Lee. Jason Scott Lee. Jason, yeah, okay. Jason Scott Lee. Uh, but with the different voices, like, you could have him do the... Um, uh, Bruce Lee, uh, do that same quote, but with the Bruce Lee voice, or Mowgli from uh, from Jungle Book. Unless you've got power, <laughs> you can't you can't hover over water unless you have power. <laughs> unless you've got power. Unless you've got power. Unless you've got power. I don't know how many years that was like his most notable moment in Hollywood. <laughs> that's kind of sad. I'm gonna. I watched he, the reason why that, that's in my head too is because I just watched that clip like last week, and I'm gonna watch it as soon as we get off here too. Dude, he has he has some sort of working relationship with Disney, because um, I mean, I think I think the not, the '90s Jungle Book. I want to say that was a Disney production. I really liked that when I was a kid. It was scary. That's why. I want to go back. The, go the back quicksand. Again. Fuck. Yeah, that was a that was a terrifying death. That was horrifying. But Isn't John Cleese now, in that? Yeah, John uh, Cleese. I'm pretty sure John Cleese is in that movie. Sure, I'll go, I'll go with your memory. It's probably sharper than mine. But um, he's also Lilo and Stitch because they they wanted people from the island mm-hmm. to actually do the voice work, and he's from Hawaii, and uh, he's in fucking Move On, like. The, the new one that has yet to be released. Uh, according to Red Letter Media, it's not going to be released. <laughs> uh, I mean, it. yeah, it's it's hard to say. that That's it, worth so much money to Disney that I, they'll probably sit on it as long as they can. <laughs> they, I was watching a bit of their, their, uh, their video. They were talking about the movies that weren't released, and they talked about the Wes Anderson movie that's not going to get released right now. I'm like, fuck, I'm really upset about that because I'm really looking forward to that. And he's like... The Wes Anderson movie, not going to come out. It's fine. Just watch any one of his other movies. It's the exact same. I'm like, you're. I get what you're saying. You're wrong, but you're right. I know what you mean. <laughs> it's like, I like you, but you're we'll wrong, come back to that. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> anyway, uh, the president, who is apparently suffering some sort of back problems, he, uh, he calls Bonsai via video call, which in 1984 is kind of a big deal. And uh, Yakov Smirnov appears in this scene. Oh, that's Yakov? Uh, 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure. It's a national security advisor, Smirnov. Uh, they even <laughs> just called him that. So it's like, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> like, You oh. have a perfectly funny individual in the room, and you're not letting him be funny. <laughs> a better choice, Father Guido Sarducci. Always. Always. Yeah. Um, but we explain the situation, and uh, <laughs> we, we get a troubling line here. <laughs> but Kru Bonsai tells the president uh, something about... Oh, he uses the word explosive. The president cuts him off and he says, explosive? What are you? What, some kind of race war in New Jersey? <laughs> it's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't know if that was ripped from the headlines in 1984, but I, that was a little peer into the uh, president's psyche that was actually kind of amusing. <laughs> but um, we get a call from John Lithgow, who has been absent for the past hour. <laughs> And uh, he's making ransom demands because he has captured Penny and he wants the overthruster. The overthruster. Overthruster. <laughs> overthruster. Um, and he wants it so they can complete, so they can enter that dimensional space. And I guess he's trying to go home. Like, his, he's not trying to kill anyone or, like, blow up the planet or anything. He just wants to fucking go home, which is kind of sad. Um I did like that the way they're torturing Penny for now is uh, they're slathering honey on her arms and dumping ants on her. Yeah, I, so, so here's my here's my note. I have Lithgow has Penny. I don't know what's happening. Like this is like this is where the movie is complete. Like I'm completely lost. I have no clue. What's, I was paying attention. I don't know what's happening. Yeah, I mean you're you're not in the minority there. I'm sure this is the case for most people. But um, we, <laughs> uh, we, we cut back people, to I mean, most people. There, there are there are Trevor. There are a group of people, more than ten thousand, I would say, that hold this movie dear and somehow glean some kind of meaning out of this jumble of whatever. That's insane. <sighs> I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure there's a theater in Austin, Texas, where people throw watermelons at the screen. When <laughs> Jeff it's like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure there's a theater somewhere in the United States that does that. Um, but we cut back to Buckaroo Banzai, and apparently he's designed some vests with uh, snorkel yeah, mouthpieces embedded in them. <laughs> I mean, I didn't understand what that was. What's with the with the mouthpieces? What does it go to? Your mouth. <laughs> I mean, I get it goes to your mouth, but what are they breathing or not breathing? Well, the what he explained. This this actually falls into that sub subgenre that I've mentioned last episode. Um, sci-fi via hot glue gun. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are these are basically hockey pads or a or a catcher's chest protector mm-hmm. with a, like spray painted tan with a, literally just a snorkeling mouthpiece attached to the like the upper chest portion of it. Um, it's the whole point of these props is that it's supposed to allow everyone to see the aliens like bonsai can do naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody has to wear these vests, um, so they can gear up for the final battle. Um, <laughs> Yakov, Be- Yakov Smirnov botches a line and we leave it in. Uh, that was kind of funny. He, he like trips over his lines and I guess we just left it there. Maybe we only had him for five minutes or something, but Probably. it actually kind of made me laugh a little bit. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the president's office, like an EMP goes off. So like all the lights shut off and, uh, there's a general there. And I don't know if this was supposed to be like commentary, uh, for the state of affairs in, in the U S in 1984. Um, but 
this general character, he steps into the room with the president and he's asked like his opinion on things and he straight up just says, I'm freaking terrified. Like mm-hmm. I'm shaking in my boots and the president commends him for being honest about his fears. So I don't know if that was supposed to be commentary on something because that was a very unusual element to have in this movie. You, uh, you could have cut out that exchange entirely and it wouldn't have changed anything. Um, but again, maybe it was something relevant for its time. But uh, we uh, <laughs> we get a prop. We actually get some prop comedy here in the form of uh, the president receiving some paperwork that reads uh, "Declaration of War: colon, The Short Form." It's <laughs> <laughs> like that's almost like an airplane gag. I was gonna say that's. <laughs> I immediately thought Leslie Nielsen. I'm like that's a, that's fucking uh, to- or Naked Gun. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I love those movies, man. I haven't seen I haven't seen the Naked Gun movies. I've only seen um, some of the latter ones, like Spy Hard. There's another one. What's the one where he's running with the fe- with the arm? Uh, wrongfully accused. Wrongfully accused. I think I've seen that one as well. I need to go back and watch the Naked Gun movies. I bet that's yeah. like prime too. Oh, they're they're good fun. Like God, they're they're great. great fun. Yeah, like actually all the way through. I can't remember the second one of all things, but the third one I remember being pretty fun. Which one does he do the door gag where they walk through the door and he walks in front of the set? <laughs> I don't know why. It's one of the. It's the. It's the just the simplest thing and just it's so funny. I can't remember which one, but I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and I, I love shit like that. I, I it's love so shit good. Like that's so much. Or it's like, man, if you pay attention even a little bit, it's like, <laughs> it's like that was good. But, uh, so we we roll into Yo-Yo Dine, uh with uh, the rocket truck and the uh, tour bus. Why and, does uh, he go there? Th- th- I thought this was weird. They, like, did they ask him to come alone? Did I miss something? I think you're right. I didn't catch it either, but I think that's the idea. Because he tells, like, everybody's there. Yeah. But he goes in alone and he tells them, wait a half an hour and then come come running. Yeah. So I, probably they asked for just him. Okay. Um, but... John Lithgow gives a speech to all the other electroids in this uh, factory warehouse where we saw the experiment earlier. Actually kind of a cool set. I liked it a lot. Um, I don't know how much of it was just the location, but it looks nice on film. And Lithgow is giving this this big, rowdy speech, and nobody cares. <laughs> like, all the other electroids are just... There's a whole bunch of, like like living room furniture strewn about this warehouse, and everybody's just kind of, like, sitting around reading comics or eating eating junk food mm-hmm. with like their head between their knees like nobody cares yeah again so john lithgow lithgow's basically been out of the movie since we've been talking for a while now and now he's back and now he's just having this crazy hitler speech uh he's like we're gonna go i guess they're gonna go get their comrades from the eighth dimension and then they're gonna go to planet 10 and then something yeah the whole premise i guess is that john parker is the so the jamaican electroids uh john parker being one of them is part of the black electroid race and john lithgow and all the yo-yo dying aliens are part of the red electroid race so like ants i guess they're they're warring amongst themselves Mm. so i'm guessing he wants to go home to fight the black electroids or something um and john parker's like no i don't want that so it's a it's an interdimensional war that Earth just happens to be a, a battleground today. <laughs> Earth is a battlefield. Um, <laughs> uh, fucking the guy who plays um, John Parker, 
plays um, Halloran, uh, Dick Halloran in Doctor Sleep, the underwhelming uh, Ewan McGregor movie from yeah, I, think, I watched that recently. It, did you? Did, well, what did you think like of the a month ago? The dream sequence where the lady flies over to that girl. That's excellent. Room. I've I that made the whole movie like it's worth watching it just for that sequence. I I don't know what it is about that sequence. I love it. I I think it's telling that I've heard nothing but amazing things about uh, Haunting of Hill House the series. It's fantastic. Yes, I really enjoyed it. I've heard nothing but amazing things about that. However, I think it's telling that the director is most noted for working on a series mm-hmm. because Doctor Sleep, I don't think should have been a movie. No, it's. I think it should have been a series. It has its moments. The structure of that movie is sleepy. <laughs> like there's but, breezy, there's cozy, and there's sleepy. It's <laughs> one of those movies where I wish I could just take that scene out of it and just keep that scene for myself because I fucking love every every little bit of that scene. I won't no, watch that, the there's a, for that. There's several exceptional sequences in that movie. They just don't stitch, stitch together that well. Although no. I don't know, there's an extended cut. Maybe it fixes some things. <laughs> give us the what's the give us the Snyder cut. <laughs> it's like it's like yeah let let's let's fix this let's fix the situation by digging the hole a little bit deeper. <laughs> what am I missing about the Snyder cut? Like it's such a huge deal that they're releasing the Snyder cut of uh, is it Batman v Superman that they're dropping? Justice League. Justice League. Sorry, it, like it's like a big deal. I don't understand. Uh it's because. It's a very public example of a film that was a troubled production and had, like I think the major difference is that it's a very public example being that there exists marketing like the initial trailers for the film were color graded differently mm. and the end product has I think Joss Whedon's name on it Ugh. and you can actually just on a, upon casual viewing, you can tell what scenes were reshot by Joss Whedon, just in terms of line delivery, and I hate to say it, but lighting. And Ben Affleck was definitely hitting the booze pretty hard during this research because <laughs> he is bloated and red in the face. Oh, that's bad. And they they made Gal Gadot not look amazing. Yeah, that says a lot to, do. That, to your lighting crew. That's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's really fucking hard to do, it's and they did it, <laughs> and they put it in theaters <laughs> for everyone to see. So it's it's just a really public example of a movie that was largely intended to be something that wasn't what it ended up being. Okay. So I think people are just curious, and also like, I I think uh, our tour theory has like a lot has a lot more believers these days. Like people probably put a lot more weight on that than they used to because mm. there's any anytime you have a situation where it feels like a or it seems like an artist had their their work hijacked or something mm-hmm. it gets a lot of traction in the press and i don't know how much truth there is to it there's some people that throw that concept out the window entirely but i mean if you look at justice league as compared to man of steel and batman versus superman it doesn't feel like it came from the same voice give me the fincher cut of alien 3 uh, he won't give it to you, though, because <laughs> he doesn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> um, Sad. Do you want to yeah. You want to let's get through the, the last bit of this movie? We're yeah, so close, so, dude. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Lithgow gives his speech. I did like that. Uh, he's like 
having everyone shout along with him and he's like we're going to head back to the eighth dimension and and then he says real soon and everybody soon. throws their fists up and they're like, real soon and it's it's cool but um bonsai comes in they immediately put him in something called the shock tower which may as well be the martin riggs uh school of torture because mm-hmm. uh, they definitely put him in something and shock him uh, Ellen Barkin has a tarantula on her leg at some point. Uh, the shock tower is apparently a brutal form of a lie detector. So if you tell a lie, it shocks you. And uh, we get a cute little gag where it's become a running joke at this point that uh, every time Big Booty's name is said, so Christopher Lloyd's name is said, um, he corrects them and says it's Big Bootay. Big Bootay. And it's kind of funny because, like, John Lithgow is like ordering him around. He's like telling him to like throw the switch on the shock tower and stuff. And Christopher Lloyd, like, we just get this offhand shot of him like with his hands up, and he's like, he like mouths big bootay, mm. and he looks so frustrated, he's just like big bootay, <laughs> in his very Christopher Lloyd way. And it's it's cute, but uh, we shocked the fuck out of Bonsai, including his nuts. It's it's you know. If you're gonna if you're gonna try to make your movie a little bit funny, put some nut stuff in there. It usually works. <laughs> um, but uh, the tour bus roll like literally rolls into Yo-Yo Dine uh, by way of distraction um, in the form of a subplot that I had no idea of what it was trying to do. Apparently, there's like a presidential secretary of some sort, uh, the guy who got kidnapped earlier, who's a I don't know, like a saboteur or something. Because he's, like, working with Bonsai, but he ends up trying to betray him later. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, man. But w- the bus rolls into Yo-Yo Dine. Uh, the kid has a rifle, by the way. That's kind of yeah. <laughs> That's kind of great. <laughs> um, and, yeah, uh, we get jumped by some red electroids. It feels like, I don't know, this, this is, like, typical alien stuff, but before aliens. So, mm. like, there's even, like, uh, reference to this warehouse location as being a nest. Which I did get a little chuckle out of the fact that uh, Electroid Nest is apparently just a place that has a lot of porno magazines, uh, Value Village furniture, and Cheetos. <laughs> so they're they're just a bunch of lazy buggers. Like, they're not advanced. They're just kind of like, bah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I always get a kick out of that. It's like, oh, they're dumb aliens. <laughs> like, I mean, not every alien has to be smart. Uh but yeah, all the electroids are lazing about with beer and chips and stuff. And uh, an alarm goes off at some point, and uh, the alarm is shouting, "There, there are monkey boys in the facility," <laughs> <laughs> which is just, you know, alien shit. But um, we also get to see that the electroids are apparently uh, a little bit challenged when it comes to spelling because there's a door that reads, "No, nobody comes in her yeah. secret, secret." <laughs> Nobody comes in here secret. Spelled ejaculate comes. Yeah. Nobody comes in her secret. Yeah. Ha 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 ha. I thought that I thought that was like supposed to be a it, it's supposed to be a joke, and I'm like, eh, I get what yeah. you're doing. <laughs> I too know little, what you're trying too to do. late. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Buckaroo Banzai and Jeff Goldblum, who I believe his name in this is New Jersey. Uh, they call him that at some point, probably because mm. he's from New Jersey. But uh, they meet up in the hallways. Uh, do some shooting gallery stuff. Uh, Bonsai gets to do some action stuff. It's kind of cool. 
Um, we also get an, a neat map painting of uh, the under, like the underside of a spaceship that the electroids are trying to build in this warehouse. Mm. Uh, it's like a situation where the top half of the frame is clearly painted, and the rest of it is like the factory floor as it normally would be. It's it's fairly nice looking actually. Um, whew, uh, we save Barkin. Um, <laughs> There's an alien slug that's like on a ramp slowly coming towards her, and we very, very easily dismiss it. I think Jeff Goldblum literally just slaps it yeah. when it's not even halfway down the ramp. So it's like, were we even trying to make any tension out of that scene? Because you utterly failed. <laughs> but anyway, we saved her, and uh, Goldblum tends to her while Bonsai goes off with uh, John Parker to take care of business. And uh, we get some more nice matte shots in here uh bonsai and john parker fight their way into the ship uh and <laughs> john parker says it looks like one of our thermal pods but it's a very bad design <laughs> it's, it's like oh wow i guess the red electrodes are even dumber than the black ones but uh big bootay uh flips off john Jalithgow from behind which i got a kick out of because mm. he, he's just said his name wrong one too many times it's christopher just lloyd with a big rubbery alien hand going like, mm. yeah. <laughs> like yeah it's it's satisfying but uh the ship comes on them the ship comes on them it, yep. it just has it just has like a hose in in like the the housing that they're in within it that uh spurts some white jism on them that's lovely uh, and then we get some nice uh, miniature and uh like blue screen effects here uh, i say nice but remember it's from 1984 you can definitely see like the matte lines around mm -hmm. all the miniatures but i did like the design of these miniatures they're all very distinctive and they move well for sure like they have yeah. some nice motion blur on them and stuff um uh, but yeah uh, as as you would expect um the overthruster isn't exactly i don't even think as i have it expect. at this point <laughs> <laughs> what's that as you would expect i'm like uh, poor very poor choice of words <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't even think that john lithgow has the overthruster at this point he's just desperate and he's running away from bonsai who is shooting all of his friends so mm -hmm. you know justifiably so uh and he he starts up the spaceship and they go crashing through a wall instead of crashing into the eighth dimension uh so they take off through the wall and up into the sky uh buckaroo bonsai and john parker pursue via like a smaller craft that spits out of it in midair um and this is where we get that 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 thing that i mentioned earlier where we we have the finale of the movie so john lithgow and big bootay who is now dead by the way yeah. uh, i think john lithgow shot him uh he's trying to fly off in his spaceship and John Parker and Buckaroo Bonsai are pursuing him in this smaller pod, and Bonsai, like, jerry-rigs something to fire a laser. But the way he does this is we get a view from inside their pod, and it, the camera is facing past Peter Weller's face, who is facing the camera. Meanwhile, John Parker is facing the opposite direction. So think uh, Snowspeeder from, uh, from Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Um, so Peter Weller is essentially in the gunner's seat while John Parker is driving, and so this climactic moment where he fires the laser at the spaceship and blows it up, we get this shot of Peter Weller looking away from what he's shooting at and like hitting a button, and then we see a laser blow up the spaceship, and he doesn't even see it happen. Yeah. <laughs> like, like we see the explosion through the through the like the viewport in the pod. 
it's very casual and very like you guys really didn't give a shit did you <laughs> like <laughs> i mean it, it's interesting but it's a creative decision that i can find no reasonable explanation for like why of all ways to convey that information why would you choose to do it in that way that's what this movie's colon uh, should be. It's like the Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai colon. Why was that your decision? Not even that. Just why? Why? Why do you exist? <laughs> just, just, just why? I'm going to jump off the philosophical deep end trying to understand this movie. What? What is Buckaroo Bonsai? No. Why is Buckaroo Bonsai? <laughs> I mean, you could probably give it a Criterion cover and have the Criterion channel release it. Somebody would some somebody would like write a piece about it and like it's genius like what like what it's doing as a movie and what it's not doing, and I, prob- I guarantee you the word subversive would be used twenty times. <laughs> <laughs> that person would actually lost their tenure over that, over that article. Yeah, groundbreaking, subversive, <laughs> challenging, challenging. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so the the spaceship gets blown up, and uh, we cut to the the black electroids in space, like orbiting the planet, and uh, they very casually deactivate their their particle beams. So the uh, the message of mass destruction that the Jamaican Princess Leia had told us was coming, like that's you know that's a non-factor now. Problem solved. Uh, we get a really bad blue screen shot of Buckaroo Bonsai parachuting down from the sky, and a uh, waving goodbye to john parker and we get like very heroic synth music during this it does feel like the finale of a grand action film of some sort uh the overthruster is recovered so the apparently the the plan of that secretary character is thwarted uh in the form of the kid with the rifle taking it from him which is kind of fun um and uh goldblum tells uh bonsai i did all i could um because he comes up to the tour bus and apparently, uh, Ellen Barkin is in the in the bus, so he he took care of her as best he can. Um, and in the background, you can hear that the president is calling, asking for advice. Um, and he's like actually asking, should should we destroy Russia? And and Bonsai just kind of casually tells his uh, his team in the control room, like, tell him no, <laughs> just for the love of God, tell him no. <laughs> um, but yeah, we head back into the Japanese living room, and uh, Penny is covered in sores. And uh, we get a Sleeping Beauty moment where he goes to kiss her and we get a static shock between the two of them. And, of course, she's fine. And uh, we make out as she draws the shades. And uh, I think one of the closing shots... Yeah, the closing shot, I think, is of a black electroid in space saying, So what? So what? Big deal. And I was like, that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, we get a, a black screen with a title card on it that says watch for the next buckaroo bonsai adventure buckaroo bonsai against the world crime league and uh we did not get that i don't think honestly i don't think there was actually any plan to make that it was just part of the it's part of the gag it's part of an ongoing it's like a serialized like story of some sort and then we get what i i think is the best part of the movie Mm -hmm. and that would be the end credits um (laughs) And I told you, it's it's not because it's the end of the movie. It's, it's actually a legitimately well-put-together sequence. I found it to be effective and almost, like, heartwarming. 
in that it, it made me care about all these characters that have no character whatsoever, mm-hmm. that I have no reason to care about, but just seeing the performances of the actors and uh, matching their movements with the, the music, because it has an infectious beat to it. It's this really sweet synth music. It sounds like something from a child's program, like a children's show. And basically, it looks like, like the L.A. River or something. It is, yeah. Yeah, it's it's... John John Connor's been here before. <laughs> so it's, it's the, the, uh, the the um, the race in Greece with the knives on the wheels. Yeah, yeah. This is a uh, what the John Connor truck chase. This is the end of them. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, it's a uh, Buckaroo Banzai descends like via rope into the L.A. River, and every major character in the movie that he's run into, like all the people that were on his team. Um, he's just like marching along to the beat of the music and everybody just keeps piling in like we all start to like march in a line and people just keep showing up and the music keeps going it's this really really simple like electronic drum beat and yeah everybody has big smiles on their faces some of them are like dancing while they're marching and it's it's sweet it's something that i would like to put in my movie someday it's like you know steal it from this movie from yeah, this not very good movie. <laughs> I'm watching it right now. Yeah, as you should, because I, I actually got something out of it. It's I can't exactly quantify what, but mm. it, it made me feel happy to watch <laughs> to just watch like two and a half minutes of Peter Weller and his friends take just a walking. take a nice stroll. Yeah. Just walking with the right music. Oh no, he did a jump spin. Yeah, I told you they like dance in place and stuff. It's it's I liked it. <laughs> it's like I, I need to pay some compliments to this movie. It's that. Um, but yeah, that was The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Yeah. And uh, Peter Weller month has been challenging, man. <laughs> it has not been easy. <sighs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I'll actually let you know that um, I went with a Criterion release that I'm gonna I'm going to get uh, Naked Lunch. Uh, I feel oh, you like are. It, yeah, because I didn't realize it was a Criterion release. I'm like, okay. Uh, Cronenberg, uh, Peter Weller movie. And the description enough was good. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to pull the trigger on that. And I'm, that's going to be my uh, Criterion purchase for the month. Okay, that's totally up to you. Um, I've seen it before. I enjoyed it. Uh, it's it's a solid film. Um, and Cronenberg of that era was pretty much unstoppable. Um, and yeah, I, I actually am working on finding a way to get Of Unknown Origin because uh, I do want to see that. I, I don't think it's a cinematic classic, but it is one of Peter Weller's, I think it's his first uh, leading role. Oh, okay. And it's from the man who brought us Rambo 2. <laughs> and it's about Peter Weller fighting a rat, <laughs> or at least trying to fight a rat. Yeah, well, if we can find it, we'll see how that goes. But yeah, um, because Peter Weller month has been so rough, Kyle, I would like for you to have an additional month to yourself. <laughs> uh, I feel I owe you that much. <laughs> um, oh. So pick pick a month and it's yours, sir. Because uh, October, um, if you're not familiar, is Kyle's killer October. That's always mm-hmm. reserved for Kyle. He gets all the programming choices. Um, but yeah, I'd like for you to have another one at some point. So just throw, throw a dart at the calendar and tell me when you want it. Well, eventually we're probably going to cover the Lord of the Rings movies, but... Uh that that's going to be we'll have to figure out how we're going to format that because it's there the movies are very long and uh it's that that's going to be difficult to cover well we'll also have to figure out if we're going to be doing the hobbit films as well no <laughs> i don't think we're going to be able to do the hobbit films 
what if what if we compromised and did one episode for all three of them all three of the hobbit movies we could probably do that because that's exactly what it's supposed to be it's just supposed to be one boom movie one movie yeah, just so. just one open-ended discussion about that entire trilogy i mean that is one that is an open-ended discussion about fucking 12 nearly 12 hours of movie i think with the extended cuts well i mean you're that's asking a lot of me in particular because i could not finish that trilogy nope um, Nobody I got, can. I did the first two, and I was like, <laughs> "No, I don't need more of this." You can barely get <laughs> past the second one. Like I, halfway through the second one, I have no clue what happens. Once the dragon is like the dragon comes in, then you can't. I can't remember anything else from those movies. Well, that's that's a maybe, but yeah, you you let me know when uh when you'd like to do that. Yeah. Um, but that being said, uh, this has been a. Uh, Oof, this has been a rough one, but uh, we'll, <laughs> we still got like two more weeks of this shit, so uh, bear with us. Um, that being said, um, if you'd like to check out the rest of our content, uh, we do have a website. Yeah. It's uh, catchinguponcinema.com, where you can find all of our episodes collected, uh, complete with movie posters and whatnot, so it has a nice look to it. <laughs> um, and uh, if you'd like to reach out to us on the social medias, we also have a Twitter at, uh, at Catching Cinema as well as an Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema. So if you want to poke me at either of those social media outlets, feel free. Um, Anyway, that being said, thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Yeah.